0: W.E. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is
1: The Beatles.
0: Hi there and welcome. I'm Diana Erickson, host of One Sweet Dream, and this is part three of the epic, uh, an ongoing McCartney birthday special. Now, this episode was really constructed around revisiting my interview with Chris Salovich from three years ago. Part one is my thoughts on Salovich's framing of McCartney as an artist, as well as it contains my reflections on the interview. Part two is a reprise of my interview with Chris Salovich. And part three, which is this part, is a conversation with Hallie Ryan, who has been a contributing researcher to One Sweet Dream over the past year. Now, Hallie and I have lots of conversations, but I thought it would be fun just to record a casual conversation between us on the subject of Salovich's book and the Salovich interview. And it ended up being a, <laughs> surprise, surprise, a long conversation. So i broken it into two parts. Um, which really occurred naturally. The first part is all about the contents and themes of Salovich's book, and the second part is really about Salovich's interview with McCartney from 1986. We delve more into what McCartney said in this interview, and I think this is important and it's worth doing because McCartney was incredibly open and frank at this time, and um, it's a relatively unfiltered look at McCartney's thoughts, and, and it deserves more attention. So we touch upon some of the things that he said in this interview. So I hope you enjoyed this. Why don't we just dive right into this episode? Part two will be out next week. Here we go. here today with Hallie Ryan, the researcher extraordinaire for Once We Dream. And well, Hallie loves all the Beatles. I do. Uh, She is a John girl. I am.
1: And you love me anyway. I do.
0: (laughs) I'm almost a John girl. I'm more of a Paul girl, but like pretty close to almost
1: being a John girl too. I know. I could hear that in your voice and your thoughts.
0: <laughs> but it's good for me to also have a John girl as a researcher because there's always lots to dig into for John.
1: Well, you know, um, he's got a lot of feelings.
0: <laughs> he does have a lot of feelings. He, uh, he's a complex character. And also I feel like I've studied McCartney to some extent. and But
1: I think you're one of the only ones who gets John and tries to get John and tries to understand where some of his insane behavior comes from. I yeah. don't think a lot of people do that.
0: Thank you. I mean, I love John. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't try and understand John. He's so fascinating. John wanted to be understood. So I'm like, okay, John, let's, let's, let's get I into it.
1: I, one of my favorite things that you said, and I don't know if it was the aftermath episode, because that was one of my favorite episodes, but you were like, you know, John put this information out there and he wants people to hear it. And he wanted people to know it. And I was like, Yes. That
0: makes sense. Well, that's the thing is that I always felt a little bit badly. Like, you know, I'm challenging this view of him that he and Yoko honed so carefully, you know? And then I thought, should I just let it be? Like, just leave it be. That's what he wanted. But then I thought, no, he also said these other things. I know. We're just ignoring half of his interviews. And I think he just wanted to be understood. That's all. So it's not fair to just cherry pick the ones that go with his narrative. But you being a John girl means that sometimes you don't know as much about Paul. That's true. And, And so I had repeatedly said you should read Salovich because so often with Paul, I find that there's a lot of baggage. Like it's acceptable to sneer at Paul. Yeah, in a way or be suspicious of him. Uh-huh. So tarnished by the breakup that I think even authors that like him get used to talking about him in a certain way. For example, uh, I interviewed Bob Spitz, and, and uh-huh. I know you've heard it. You know, I shared it with you, and it was funny because the way he talked about Paul at the end, I was like, "Well, look, I I know you don't really like Paul that much," and he was like, What well, what do you mean? Absolutely not. Like, Paul is my favorite. I'm a Paul guy. I'm a Paul guy. Exactly." And I was like. What? Because you've not said one nice thing about him. Like not one nice thing. And I think people have gotten used to talking about him in a certain way, like saying that he was overbearing. Well, maybe there's a different word for that, you know?
1: Right. There's always an inner reason to why you're seeing some of these outer behaviors. And I've learned this through listening to your podcast, but like, when you dig into these guys' lives, you start to see where some of these behaviors that you're kind of like, what is that about? You kind of start to make sense of it all.
0: Right. That's something that hasn't been done enough for Paul. Well, for any of the other Beatles, for John, yes, there's an understanding of like, John has done this because of his background and he talked about it a lot. But, you know, Paul being controlling or overbearing, maybe that's because of his background, you know? Wow. And so, yeah.
1: I think you have to look at that then.
0: <laughs> we do, we do. And so I thought what we could do was talk about Salovich because I like this book so much. He's very positive. He talked to a lot of people in the mid 80s when memories were fresher. Like I, I put a lot of value on the interviews he did because he talked to a lot of paul's schoolmates his teachers and i think what he did is he created a profile of paul as a character outside of the beatles like i got a sense of who paul was personality wise just as a an artist versus so often it's like paul is Beatle. you know what wow. i mean in relation to the group the, the Beatle, the beetle loves beatles. them the most exactly So, I'm curious about going through, and we've already discussed this in advance that we were going to uh-huh. do, but we haven't discussed anything that you're going to say. What are some of the things that you learned? What did you think of the book, first of all? And what are some of the highlights of the book for you?
1: I really liked it. Paul, he's a deeper character than I think he's given credit for. You know, I think kind of when we see old man Paul these days, he kind of. Wants to smile and talk about the good old days and everybody loves each other, which I totally get that he wants the Beatles legacy to be left with like a feeling of love. And I think especially when you had such a great love with these guys for so long and then it ended badly. I I understand that he wants to say, no, 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 you don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, you don't understand. That wasn't really how it was for 12 years. Yeah. But I do think... Like when I first listened to the actual interview with Salovich and Paul through your podcast, that's a very different Paul. It was almost jarring, not in a bad way, but he just sounded so different from the Paul that's been around the last 20 years that everything is so positive and Everything with the Beatles was so positive. He just sounded his answers sounded deeper and more real. You mean in that interview with Salovich, I played
0: a bunch of clips from Paul and you you did. Did. is that what you're referring to? That's what or I'm did. referring to. Okay. Yes.
1: He just sounded like a different Paul. Do you think?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And one I much prefer that Paul to now. The the Paul that we hear, like I I've said this before, and personally I'm not a fan of Paul's interviews these days. Sure. Every once in a while he'll say something that is insightful so i still listen but if i i wouldn't (laughs) if i didn't have a podcast because i find him quite simple and strategic and pr trained right now
1: Mm -hmm. i think he wants to tie things up with a bow
0: yes right now he just seems to want to keep things on a very surface joyful fun level and that's wonderful And many people seem to enjoy that. I guess I should clarify that I think he's the coolest, most badass older man in the world. Yeah. Um, But I'm listening from a deep Beatles and Paul McCartney fan perspective who'd like to see his um, reputation corrected. And I don't think it reflects the complexity of his thinking as in, Uh, You know, he has lived the most interesting life in the world, basically. He is the most interesting man in the world. But the way he communicates doesn't really reflect that. You know, to really understand McCartney, the artist, we have to look at the things that he said over the past, you know, 60 years. Right. Because this is a Paul that wants to put a happy glow, a happy sheen on everything.
1: Yeah, but
0: in some ways it reduces the passion, the complexity, the depth.
1: Yeah. The fire, the the determination. Yes.
0: Like he undermines almost his own contributions as well as the depth. And as you said, fire of his relationship with John.
1: Yeah. And just his gifts. And I have been so surprised to learn what a tough, seductive, not naughty in a sneaky way, but just kind of like seductive. you know, oh, yeah, definitely. Like in a good definitely. Way. Yeah. But mm-hmm. again, I feel like I have to be careful when I say that because I don't mean that he's conniving or he's trying to set anybody up. I just mean there's a rebel in him, you know? Absolutely. It's like either he's Mr. Goody Two-Shoes or else he's
0: conniving. You know what but I mean? There's
1: no in between.
0: Yeah. And there's plenty of anecdotes of Paul liking to be a bit rebellious. I mean, the the guy did more drugs and had more sex than almost anybody. So often they're set up as John's the mischievous troublemaker, rebel, and Paul's the good guy who softens John. But the thing is, there's a lot of overlap. There's a very soft, gentle, good side of John. There's a Ah. mischievous side of Paul. And that's why they like each other.
1: Paul is not John's babysitter.
0: Absolutely. That's, you know, that that's one of my most hated concepts because it suggests all the fire is coming from John.
1: John's the artist. All John's the artist.
0: Yeah. And I just think a lot of fire is coming from Paul and that's yeah. calling him the family guy, the normie kind of undermines his creative depth. The, the fire and, the well,
1: country, and how much he can creatively turn John on,
0: you know what exactly, I mean? exactly. Yeah. I mean, Paul actually said in his interview with Salovich that he's crazy enough as it is. I mean, can you imagine his inner creative brain? And you know, I think John loved that part of him. He digs it. Remember how apparently he pushed Paul to carry out the, uh, you know, Paul McCartney goes too far album. Which shows that Cartney was the one that was going too far behind the scenes. Yeah. And he's also, by the way, been pretty freaky and experimental and crazy throughout his career.
1: Yeah. One of the best quotes I ever heard that you found was about how Paul plays games too. and That doesn't have to be anything bad or conniving. It's just when you're in a relationship, a creative relationship or... Any relationship, you play games with each other to keep each other engaged. Oh, oh, I love that one. That's from John in
0: the early 70s. And I don't have it in front of me, but it's when John talks about the fact that when Paul was playing his games, I was always the one that would react and get emotional and he would play it cool. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was better at keeping control when he was playing those mind Which games. Which
1: is great information.
0: <laughs> it is great information because it suggests that Paul is playing mind games and John knows it. And John is more reactive, but it suggests that Paul's playing too. Yes, you know? Because of course he is. That's right. It's a game. You enter this game or this dance with somebody that can play with you that can match you
1: and wants to play
0: you know somebody doesn't
1: want to play then that's no fun and the game's over
0: yeah so Paul comes off as more
1: complicated I think definitely more impressive and I think in interviews in the 60s you know, I can see how maybe the public thought, Paul, he's charming and friendly and happy because he yeah. is. But that's a gift too, to kind of know that you can be charming and friendly and know that not that you can manipulate, but that that's kind of, oh, totally. but behind the scenes, he can kind of, like he says, they bright a day in the life and they kind of wink at each other because yeah. it's so naughty and they know what they're doing. Yeah. So that's a gift to know that you can do that. Yeah, because I
0: kind of feel like he weaves his magic around everybody. That's kind of his charm. There seems like there's an innocence or a goodness to Paul Mm -hmm. that is kind of persuasive. But as I said in the episode about Paul, I think if that's all there was to Paul, he would have faded pretty quickly. What makes him much more compelling in the long run is the fact that there's so much more underneath the surface. He's lasted as an icon, as this massive superstar, because he is complex.
1: I think so too. I think he's just always kind of surveying the situation. He might be talking to you, but he's also got one eye over here to kind of see what's coming ahead. Yes. Yeah. I think he's just aware of a lot of things at one time.
0: Yeah. Well, both Martin Carr and Pete Bafides both talked about that, about him having this incredible level of awareness and being able to do two things at the same time, like be constantly surveying a situation. Uh-huh. I mean, it just speaks to his incredible intelligence which comes up a lot in this book
1: right and there's a quote from john and you can tell he's kind of like proud that oh yeah. i'm with paul and paul could have been a doctor and john loves that like smart people love him
0: yeah yeah there was another quote i think it's an anthology where he talks about like one of the things that separated the beatles was that they were really smart uh-huh. way better than everyone else as you said he seems to be quite proud And
1: I I think there's even that quote, and you've mentioned it before too, the one where John's like, you think I'm tough? You haven't seen Paul. That guy will carve people up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's kind of a sense of pride in that. I think he feels
0: safe with Paul. That uh, brings me to a point that we discussed in the interview, which is Salovich, we were talking about how John was controlled. By Yoko, and then I made the point that he liked to be controlled by Yoko. And then he said, Well, I wonder if John was controlled by Paul. And I think there's a lot of support for the fact that he was controlled by Paul and liked it, not as in John didn't have any autonomy or didn't have say. I think he had a ton, and Paul obviously wanted him to weigh in, but there was an element of Paul giving him direction and controlling things that he really liked.
1: Well, there was a quote, there was a word that I circled, and one of the words that Salvage, or I think it was Salich, somebody used to describe him was unflappable, like he stays so calm. Paul mm-hmm. stays so calm in these situations. And I was like, oh, John loves that. John is also so unflappable, Diana, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so, like, Where John, is she
0: going with this one? I can't imagine that. But, but exactly. John Lennon is so calm and cool. Always. he never, So that's why he oh, loved yeah.
1: that in Paul.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually, because, and it's not that Paul is unemotional. It's that he's unflappable. And you see that in the breakup mm-hmm. is that John's, when and it goes to that quote that I talked about too, in that John talks about when Paul's playing mind games, yes. he reacts, you know, like John is highly reactive. And that's one of the attractive things about John It seems very authentic. Uh-huh. You see his emotions. Mm-hmm. Paul was so much more controlled in that, you know, he's got big emotions, but he's not going to share them.
1: Right. But I think John is very drawn to that in Paul, that there is a calmness and an unflappability and a toughness because having read several books about John and his childhood, yes, it was mass chaos all the time. And so I think the calmness and just kind of the safety, he feels that I'm with Paul and together, we're good. Nobody's gonna hurt us. Right, right,
0: right. I agree. Paul's unflappability and an ability to charm when necessary, mm-hmm. combined with a toughness, is something that John knows he can count on. He's mm-hmm. safe with him. Mm-hmm. And that and so John's safe to be John.
1: They can have more fun together if he knows Paul's gonna help him get out. And then, based on what you read, what do you think
0: that Paul is drawn to?
1: that John is kind of this character who does what he wants and you know he doesn't really have parents to make sure he's doing his schoolwork or wanting to make sure he's doing this or that I feel like at some point Mimi has kind of thrown her hands in the air and has wanted all these things for John and she realizes that that's not happening
0: yeah yeah
1: um so John's just kind of always running around with these mad ideas and up for fun and up for adventure yeah I think Paul sees that and it's like, that's what I need. That's what I need. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's true. Like he had so much pressure on him to deliver, perform, be the Mm -hmm. star that his family thought he was. And Mm John is just unbound by conventions. I think he opened up the world for Paul, Mm -hmm. a different world. Mm -hmm. And Paul talks about that. But I think that John just made life bigger and fun. Yes. you've got this kid, Paul, that, was a natural leader, that everybody liked him, that had, you know, a genius of music. And then he meets John, who's just like, let's play.
1: And I think John's like, hey, you want to get into a little trouble? Yeah. And I think that's attractive to Paul, you know? Yes, yes exactly. At that point in his life, it's like, yeah, let's do something crazy. Exactly. I think it's their belief in each other that just yeah. pushes the whole thing, you know? The whole Beatles experience through is that if, if they believe in each other, nothing can stop them.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think John kind of, maybe he kind of helps Paul laugh at himself. You know, like I think in Get Back, like I think John, once they get in a groove, I think John is good at, you know, things not getting taken too seriously. True. That's true. John gets very silly. You know, if you look at the early, (laughs) if you
0: look at the early Beatles stuff, it's like three quarters of what John does is to make Paul laugh.
1: And make faces. Yeah, mean? I mean,
0: like three yeah. quarters of what he does and the energy he puts in the world is actually just to make Paul laugh. Yeah, actually for one person. <laughs> and Paul thinks John's hysterical. And then Paul plays into it, you know? And it gets Paul every time. And then Paul contributes to it. And so they have this inside thing, but you're right. I always imagine that being the situation after his mother passed then he met John and not only is John so magnetic and like a musical soulmate or creative soulmate, he's funny and irreverent, you know, in a way that was so good for Paul.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I think he helps ground Paul in their partnership sometimes. And because Paul has a tendency to control and get obsessive and anxious. Yes. And I think John is probably the only person that can deal with that. Just like Paul is the only person who can deal with John and some of his idiosyncrasies. Yeah. That's part of why I think he's angry is I think he's like, do you know how much I fucking do <laughs> for you? Well, no,
0: I think that that is a really important point. I think that John does a lot more for Paul than we realize, because I think Paul is actually extremely emotional. I don't think we should conflate how they behave externally, with the level of emotion they feel internally in, in other words i don't think their external reactions are a measure of how much they actually feel but rather like a, a measure of how well they can control it you know and i think he can be quite emotionally volatile remember in his discussion about jane asher he said that at the end of the day he realized that maybe he was the drama queen apparently he used to always accuse her of being a drama queen but then in his book many years from now he's like I. I sort of think that maybe I was the drama queen. You know, I always think that he probably is a drama queen, but of course, absolutely so is John. And then I also think Jane is. So I think that there was a lot of emotional volatility between those three.
1: I think so for sure. I think they all, Paul and John especially, I think they enjoy the drama. Oh, definitely. I think Paul and Jane enjoyed the drama too. Yes, and you know, to- Pull another drama character into this mess. I think Brian really? and John like drama.
0: Well, and you know what? While we're pulling in drama queens, let's pull in Yoko.
1: Well, Linda and Paul said that they had a volatile relationship, and that would keep yeah, things and, and spicy. He liked it. He liked oh, it. Yeah. So there's there's two things
0: I was thinking is that uh, yes, when you talk about Paul's unflappability, I think it is his ability to control himself in emotional situations. But I think John enjoys that when it is outside of the two of them you know what i mean like the inflexibility that you were talking about is actually how paul in the face of whatever they're facing can deal with
1: it of situations kind of he can keep control of like public situations that the beatles are in exactly he's very
0: smooth he's very in control whereas he complains about the fact that, that Paul's face, he wears a mask and, you know, I think it probably drove him crazy how controlled he could be in their relationship because I believe McCartney was highly reactive. He could play the game quite well. I think Yoko's kind of like that too, actually, you know, she's able to, even though she is extremely emotionally volatile as well. I think.
1: Watching her over the course of the seventies and in various interviews, She keeps herself together and focused and I don't know. I don't feel like I see a lot of emotion from her in interviews, but then I read stuff behind the scenes and she seems like she's reactive all over the place.
0: Well, that's the thing is that like Yoko's so full of like plots and schemes and you know, she's always like strategizing and that's based on emotion, you know? Like I feel like she's, she keeps records on people, but she doesn't show it. Anyways, so I just wanted to make that point that Paul is calm and unflappable, but I don't think it reflects the level of emotionality
1: inside. But and like he's just
0: kind of better at playing the long game.
1: He's better at playing the long game and just keeping a calm face while he's playing the game. Even if he's going crazy inside, he keeps a face like, "Okay, I've got this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Where I can find-
1: There's so much that gets kind of made of Paul and his control and John and his jealousy. But I think John likes that Paul typically has things under control. And I think Paul kind of likes that John can kind of be jealous and possessive and that I think he likes that he's John's favorite guy.
0: I do too. I do too. I think Paul knows it very well in the Mm sixties that, you know, he knows how much he means to John, how much power he has with John. Mm-hmm. I think, I personally suspect he took that a little bit for granted, you know, and yeah. that he kind of enjoyed this position as being the most important person to John. And I think eventually John got frustrated with that, you know?
1: Yeah. I don't think their control and jealousy issues really become much of a problem until there's a fracture and they become a big problem, but they seem to manage that very well with each other, you know, for 10 years. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Like I get the sense that they have behind the scenes, big emotional battles. Like they have these interpersonal battles, but they resolve them really quickly. Like big, big volatile emotions, but most of the time it's good.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's something that it'll probably come up more when you dig into 1967, but they really are good at repairing and reconnecting when they have issues. I feel like that's something that is not understood about them. I mean, 12 years to work together and be friends and have that close of a relationship is a really long time. And they went through a lot of ups and downs in that time period.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's incredible that they lasted as long as they did in that high pressure situation. And it kind of reflects how profound the relationship must have been actually but yeah we will talk about this and what's interesting is that 67 is a point where i think some of that volatility goes away like they they really reach a plateau of goodness in that year i think it part it partly explains the volatility of 68 But anyways, we'll get into that at a a different time. But yeah, they each bring strengths to the relationship. And I do think that John is in some ways protected and able to be emotional by having Paul be there, who's both charming. You know, he can charm everyone. And I don't mean this in a fake way. I mean, people are charmed by him. And he's very good socially. Salovich talks about this. He's very good socially. puts people at ease.
1: You know, people are kind of at ease and calm when Paul's there. You know, it's funny. I heard this clip the other day, and it was about John's 1980 sailing Bermuda trip. And it was one of, like, other captain guys who had been on the ship, and he was describing the experience. (laughs) He said, (laughs) and you would not believe John was just up there steering the ship and he was singing into the rain and he was just having the time of his life. He was so unflappable. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I know every time you try and pin one of them
0: down on one word or one idea, it flips. You know, I
1: think Paul is this one yeah. way, and that's yeah. his trait, his characteristic that yeah. goes with Paul McCartney. And then here we go. Here's some other completely different situation. And they're like, John in the face of the storm was just the most unflappable person I've ever seen.
0: Well, look, you know what? All of the Beatles had to have been unflappable in a way because look at the the mass chaos that they were faced with. And none of them had meltdowns, you know? I mean, they've all got to be fairly unflappable. And actually, that's a good addition to this comment about Paul being fairly unflappable. In Salvage's book, that came up quite a bit, that he was smooth and calm and he would deal with things and calm under pressure, yeah. But Salvage's book makes the point that Paul and John were really quite equal front men at the time of like 62-ish before they became big. And for whatever reason, there's a shift where John becomes the front man publicly after that. And John does show an unflappability, a courage. He does take that kind of leadership role, externally, at least. I I do think that behind the scenes it's always Lennon and McCartney, but I think that John did show a courage. So sometimes he could be unflappable in ways that I think was really helpful for Paul and George and and Ringo, you know?
1: Yes. I can't remember where it was, but it seems like a couple anecdotes where Paul kind of liked it, when there were people that they didn't want around and John could be kind of nasty and say, get out of here, you know? Yeah. He would activate
0: John's devilish side to deal with them.
1: Yes. Yeah, sometimes that was very useful that John could kind of get a bit snarky and grouchy, and but that would keep hangers on away that they didn't want right, around. Right,
0: right, right. Sometimes John leveraged Paul's ability to charm, calm, control, situations so that they didn't blow up you know I was thinking about this that you know I talked about this at the beginning of this episode and we've talked about this that there's a sort of sometimes an element of suspicion when talking about McCartney like he's inauthentic or fake and it kind of comes from this idea that he was very charming but the charming situation I'm talking about is, He could handle people very well in a charming way, even when he didn't like them. But I don't necessarily think that was fake. Like, I don't find he was charming them to take advantage of them. I think he often used his charm in public situations to deal with situations in the most positive kind of way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, instead of yelling at them, like John might sometimes do, Paul would be charming sometimes when he didn't really feel like it. And that wasn't completely authentic. But on the other hand, it probably That was beneficial
1: to the group too, yeah.
0: Beneficial to the group. It was nicer to people. And this is something that I don't think is often discussed, but in the book they make the point that Paul is pretty kind and he is um, aware of other people's feelings. And so the fact that he might be charming people to do something when he doesn't want to do it may be a more kind way of dealing with a situation he doesn't like. But to your point, when somebody annoyed him, when he didn't like people, when he didn't like situations, in the way that John would use Paul's charm sometimes to deflate situations or deal with situations, sometimes he would activate John's devilish side to deal with them, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of the dance.
0: Part of their dance and part of their strength. Like, this is a tangent, but sometimes Paul is um, criticized for being a people pleaser. Again, that's another way of sort of saying that he's inauthentic. But, you know, people pleasing is a result of childhood traumas, too. You know, people that are people pleasers are that way because. They were expected to be that way as children. Nobody wants to be a people pleaser. Like in the Beatles books, it's always positioned that he was a people pleaser and a charmer and he loved it because then people would like him. It's like people pleasers are trained to put their own emotions and needs secondary and to make sure everybody else around them is okay first. It's a difficult way to live as well, you know?
1: Right. Well, I... I can speak from experience, but definitely from reading his story, like just him witnessing his dad and witnessing his brother after his mom passed away. And, you know, I'm sure his aunts were telling him, you've got to be strong for your dad. I'm sure it was coming from a good place. They wanted the kids to feel better and they wanted the dad to feel better. And they just wanted to move past the situation. But Paul needed to grieve. He was a 14-year-old kid and he kind of needed a shoulder to cry on. And I don't think he got that.
0: Right, and and it is connected. The idea that like your own emotions don't matter, you know, pay attention to other people's emotions. Like, put on a mask. Be happy for him. He needs to see you be happy. You know, exactly. Bury your own feelings and and look strong for him. And you know, some of Paul's annoying traits are less sexy traits are just tied to childhood in the way that, you know, John's are or George's, are. all of ours are. Yeah. What else was surprising or did you like about it?
1: I don't know if it was surprising because I've always believed that his mother was a huge just kind of presence and spirit in his life. Mm-hmm. But Salvage talked about that a lot. And it seemed like there was kind of like, before Mary passed, got sick and passed, You know, people seem to describe Paul as like a little prankster and he was mischievous and he was always getting into things. And somebody said, oh, Paul, he was hardly a withdrawn figure at all. Like he was kind of seems like Mr. Personality Life of the Party. Mm -hmm. And then Mary passes unexpectedly. And he and Mike knew nothing about that. Didn't really know she was sick. Didn't really know what had happened. And it sounds like after she has passed... His personality really changes for several months. Yeah. Just really withdraws. And from what I've read from some comments from Mike, too, Paul was spending a lot of time alone, which was unusual. Yeah. yeah. And that was when kind of the shell came up. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting, just kind of the before and after yeah. of his mom's passing.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think more attention needs to be put on to the effect. Mm-hmm. that this had on him. You know, Paul has the shell and kind of underplayed it in the 60s and didn't talk about it like John did. And yet you see right now with the book, the lyrics, how much Paul talked about his mother.
1: Yeah, Salovich used some interesting quotes from Iris Caldwell, which mm-hmm. I thought she was, she had some really good um, information, I
0: thought. You know, can I just say, Iris Caldwell is interesting. She's almost a reflection of the author's questions. I, I find she says different things to different authors. And again, mm. this was done in the early to mid eighties. Uh-huh. So I trust what she says in this book, probably okay. more than what she says later. Oh, because that's a fantastic source in this.
1: Well, in this, she said some lovely things in one section. She said that Paul had blocked out his mother's death as a matter of self-preservation. He had to show his mother he was a survivor. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what like a driving force in your heart and mind to show I'm a survivor, like, mom, I've got this. Hmm. Um, and she talked too about how close he became to her own mother, Iris's own mother. And how even after they broke up, after they had dated, he would still stop by or phone Iris' mom and chat. And I thought that was so sweet. She said that he loved to come to their house because it was full of warmth and humor. And I was like, if that doesn't describe Paul. like, (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: But you can also see how if that hadn't happened with his mom maybe he wouldn't be such an extreme like maybe the warmth of the family wouldn't be quite as compelling like he almost sort of over like reaching for it yes
1: he kind of is quite extreme in his need for that yeah yes i think so too well and i think and i know you've talked about it on your show before a lot of his financial insecurity or just, just that feeling of needing to make sure he's got enough money his whole life, you know, kind of stems from losing his mom. And I started thinking about that in the Beatles, everything seems like such a big deal, but that's such a human response to like lose a parent and you are worried about money. Like, of course you think about that, And my, I was going to tell you my husband. So when he was four, his dad, for various reasons left. And my husband kind of had a response similar to Paul, where he just kind of put the shell up and he's always been very, like, he has to plan ahead and be prepared and everything. (laughs) He just has to cover all his bases. So everything's prepared and taken care of. And I was thinking about it. And when I had my daughter in the hospital, I had a C-section. So we were there for like two nights. And the second day, my husband comes in with all these papers. And I was like, what is this? And he's like, I've got to have you sign this. And he just signed these papers. And I was like, what is this? You know, I'm on all this medicine and painkillers. And he was like, well, you've got to sign this for her college savings account. Because if you don't, like, we're already behind on this. And I was like, she was born yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just a human response to, like, worry about things like that. Yeah. And desire
0: to control
1: Yeah, and just if you're afraid you're not going to be taken care of and that you need to be the one to step up to handle things, like, of course, that's going to be your response.
0: Right. I feel like John and Paul's behaviors reflect what they needed. Like, John was the great defender of so many, he was always out there fighting. I feel like John really, really wanted somebody to fight for him. Like, that's what he needed. And so that's what he does in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas Paul probably needed to feel more security and empathy. I think Paul needed empathy, which is something that he reflects in so many of his songs. You know, it's kind of like he's especially tuned to that because that's what he needed. You know,
1: the kind of overlapping thing with them is that really they just need someone to say you're okay. We can take care of each other. You yeah. Know? The overlapping thing is they just they they just need to feel loved. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
0: and safe and in their own ways. Exactly.
1: I'm glad that Paul is putting information out there more about his mom. Like some of his stories from the lyrics have helped. And I know you've talked about some of that on your show, but yeah. just hearing him talk about his mom and how much that has impacted him helps us know more about what's going on inside of him.
0: Right. That's a great point. McCartney has always talked about his mother, a little bit, but not that much. And then the lyrics to have come out and had so much about his mother in it sort of gives this insight to this issue that was below the surface with McCartney always. It's not like it just came out at 80. You know, it was always there. Exactly. And he's kind of finally willing to share it. And we can kind of revisit a lot of this and realize how much it always impacted him because i remember early books like um shout they quoted paul about what are we going to do without her money and then there was a quote that he told astrid that like uh, you'll forget about it in a few months and the early books just kind of painted him as heartless
1: yeah and just harsh
0: yeah soulless you know Instead of somebody who was trying to keep control. All right. So what else have you got?
1: A lot of notes about like his leadership qualities and just how much some of Jim's words of wisdom early on kind of carry throughout Paul's life. Fend for yourself. Always soldier on. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. At one point, he, someone reported that Jim used to say to Paul, if you've got talent, you've got to use it. And I was like. Oh my gosh, that's gotta be a driving thing with ball. Put it there, If
0: it weighs a ton.
1: That's what a father said
0: to his young son. I don't care,
1: if it weighs a ton, as long as you and I are here, put it there.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. This idea of make the most of it, it that's your duty.
1: Yes. And Paul can never stop. It's that inner voice is still in there, you know, use it all. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought this was interesting. A photographer, Les Chadwick, who had taken some pictures of them. He described Paul as more of a thinker, a bright lad. He would use more caution. He kind of had one foot on dry land. And I thought that was interesting. And another photographer said that, you know, Paul would take the pictures but he wasn't just there to get his picture taken. Like he wanted to be involved with the scene and the setup and he kind of wanted to help the photographer direct. Interesting.
0: uh, The creative director kind of too. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: he was just kind of interested in the whole process, the whole creative process. He didn't want to just be like.
0: Yeah. He is the creator he's not just the guy that shows up that's going to be singing the songs like this idea of being the songwriter the producer the creative director it's kind of like he wants a hand in developing I mean you could look at it negatively as in he's a control freak but I think it's just curious what they're doing curiosity yeah
1: I do think with his with the situation of his mom dying, he kind of needed to have control of a lot of things in his life. But I was thinking too remember how we watched Daisy Jones recently and we talked mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with Billy Dunn, there's a few shades of McCartney in there sometimes, shades of linen too, but mostly McCartney, I thought. Yeah. But yeah. at the very end when Billy has had too much to drink, but he's on stage and I he looks the hottest and sounds the best because he's just let loose like yeah. he's just crazy and he's into the song and he's flirting oh, yeah. And he's crazy yeah and he just he looks amazing and he's into it and i was like that reminds me of paul because i think where paul loses control and just lets himself go is on yeah. stage yeah and that's why he looks so sexy and hot and sounds so amazing
0: yeah he's in flow yes and
1: yeah like, and, and, and you, you know paul let's go
0: have you ever seen that word association? And it was like music, songwriting, everything was sex to sex. him. Just like sex, sex, sex. sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything to do with music was sex.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, music to him is a big turn on. Yes. When I interviewed uh, Joshua Wolfshank, he talked about Euros being part of creation, like just yeah. the sexual energy of creating something. And Paul's talked about that as like the. The feeling of writing a song and creating something is such a turn on.
1: I was thinking about Billy Dunn on that show, and I was like, the reason he looks so hot is because he's just let go. He's let go. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. It's like McCartney in Get Back on the Roof.
1: Yeah, with his movements and his hips, and it's he's just like, he's just
0: so happy. That's a man in flow. Just I like. know.
1: And it's because, and it's because he's just let go of control. I think it's like,
0: now I can just be, (laughs) be and sing and connect with my music. And the only thing that makes me feel badly is watching Paul, especially, because he seems to be thriving the most, although they're Uh all amazing, but just seeing that and thinking, oh, they only did it once. I know. Paul is very smooth, but on stage, he's really present. You know, I never get that sense that Paul like a different animal. (laughs) He is. He's very sure of himself and connected to whatever heavenly music gods are out there. And I think that's why that John sees, and I think partly that's maybe why Paul loves making music so much because that's a place where he can play and feels without the burden of you know without the burdens of the world and i i just think that that is the guy that john probably knows best you know that when he sees paul and that's who paul really knows you know
1: right yeah i it's like the pressures of the world kind of go away when paul is on stage exactly
0: it, exactly and i think john loves that kind of yeah. freer mccartney that just likes to play and and i also think paul's a lot more sure in this space you know, and maybe this is one of the reasons why the Beatles all think that Paul is so confident, because in that place, he's very confident, you know?
1: He looks very confident. <laughs> and he and looks well, confident. I've told you this. I've told you this, but I watched, um, I had my dad watch just the rooftop concert from Get Back. Yeah. And he's 75 and, you know, so he he loves the Beatles and he loves 60s music. He's an old hippie guy, but typically kind of a a Beatle John guy. But while he was watching the Rooftop concert, he turned to me and he literally said, how would you like to be a male competing with Paul McCartney for anything in 1969? (laughs) I was like, yeah, I think it would have been rough, Dad. Well, that is such an
0: important point, though. Because, you know, can, see that. yeah that, that that's exactly it. That I, I think that we look at Paul and we're like, poor Paul, whatever the stupid story is, you know. But meanwhile, Paul in 1969 is a glorious creature in 67, 68, 69 is a glorious, I don't know sexy beast of a man, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And just, he kind of just exudes
1: like sexiness and confidence.
0: He does. And that that's like, remember when he was talking to Dana Carvey and David Spade and he was kind of like, well, you know, I was just kind of like, not trying to like, I was trying to hide my good songs because Paul is aware of the impact that he's having on the others and, you know, not show anybody up because he's aware that John's competitive, you know? And he, he wants John to be showing up and feeling confidence. Like that's something that Pete Paffiti said that I thought was a brilliant point that he is trying constantly trying to make John feel confident and empowered. And I completely see that. It's like he wants John to shine and he wants John to feel good.
1: Well, and then John gets into it on stage too. You know, he sees, well, Paul and that's the thing John's committed. <laughs> and then
0: John steps up. Like, I mean, John's saying, perfectly on the roof. John's
1: performance was outstanding. So, you know, it's always- He looked good too. I thought he looked better on the roof than he did for, you know, 90% of the movie.
0: (laughs) It's true. You know what? John looked confident and sexy and like passionate. Like this is what we do. I just I just wish they could have done it more. And and it's too bad because both John and Paul wanted to tour after that. I know. It's crazy.
1: I've also got Paul's insane- need for progress which is in this book and it's yeah. in so many of his interviews yeah. just that need to not be the same you cannot do the same thing or repeat the same thing you've got to do something I
0: know different. it's almost an obsession
1: and that's where I see that that could be very exhausting I mean it's a It's a great quality. Oh,
0: no, it's relentless. It would be exhausting.
1: It's And it's what made the Beatles great. I mean, it's part of what made them what they were. But oh my goodness, does that come from like, does that come from that need for control and to use all his talent some of those inner voices in his head
0: yeah but that's kind of it on speed like there is so much drive Paul as artist I said this in the Paul episode but I seem as much more shark-like
1: well and in Salowich's book he made mention of when Brian started to come on the scene Paul had questions with Brian. He wanted to be interacting with Brian on what people were going to be wearing and when were we going here. He's the guy who needs to know what's happening.
0: Yeah, but that, and that shows, you know, again, I don't know why Paul is looked at with so much suspicion. You know, there's always a way of portraying things positively and negatively. You can talk about that as being a good thing or, you know, Paul trying to maneuver in a way. whereas. I just think like how much confidence and drive and belief in yourself you need to be able to question everything. I mean, most He's so people, assertive. He's yeah, so most assertive. People, most people from like a poor family or uh, not a well-to-do family. Mm-hmm. You know, you get this rich manager in most people would just defer to them and say, mm-hmm. "Okay, oh, you know, no, he
1: wants to know. I would want to know what's going on too. So
0: I would too, although I I really wonder if when I was 19 or 20, I would have been able to be that tough about it. I mean, the Beatles were incredibly tough about, we're playing our music, we're doing things our way, you know, it was so impressive.
1: No, I agree. One of my favorite quotes, and I think it originally comes from the Cleve interview and then which quoted it, was Paul saying, I just have to know, I must know what people are doing. I don't like <laughs> people knowing more things than me. Why do you love that? Because I love how curious he is and how competitive he is. Yeah. You know, I know competitive is another thing that can be seen in a negative light, but the Beatles wouldn't be who they were if they weren't competitive. They had to just keep on top of what the popular things were, what people were interested in, what people were learning about. And that's what Paul was doing.
0: Yeah. People say that he had an encyclopedic knowledge of music. Yeah. You know, when I think about it just in terms of energy, uh, I remember a quote from Mike McCartney. I don't remember exactly. You might remember it actually, but watching Lennon was fascinating because he was like a caged animal or something something like that. And, and I love that quote because you get the sense of relentless predatory almost, you know, just like full of energy. But with Paul, I also see this pred, like, that's why I think almost shark, like, like Mm -hmm. predatory, competitiveness. There's big energy from that big, big energy. Mm -hmm. of I'm going to create, we're going to be better. We're going to do more, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. No, I definitely think he is the driving force of creative and artistic progress in the Beatles. Like I think that is his gift.
0: But also I just mean like in terms of the equality between John and Paul, as we talked about at the beginning, I, I do think that they are of equal energy and they had massive energy, massive creative, massive drive, both but of they them. they
1: bring out in each other. Yeah. You no, know, like one well, will do something.
0: They bring out, maybe they elevate it because they have the confidence with each other. But yeah, it's just a, a tremendous energy in the world. Yes.
1: Yes. It's uncontainable.
0: Right. And you're right. And it it probably spark off each other.
1: Yeah. I think I've read maybe in that 1963 book that's out and some other places when they were on stage together, it was just one would do one and then the other would kind of smile at the other one. And they would up the ante a little bit. And then the other one would kind of go up another notch over here. It's like they were winking at each other, smiling at each other. Top this, top this. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Oh, I thought this kind of goes along with just his constant need for progress and getting better. In Hamburg, I don't want to pronounce it incorrectly, Horst Fasher? Horst Horst,
0: Horst, yeah, Horst. Horst.
1: He said, you know, the others would, they'd have nights where they were off getting drunk and partying and everything. And he was like, Paul seemed to grab every opportunity to improve his music. And I'm sure Paul did his fair share of partying, but yeah. it's just interesting that, you know, somebody noticed that... Paul spent a lot of extra time over here, just improving the music to improve the band.
0: I actually flagged that too. I thought that was really interesting because Salvage also talks about Hamburg and Paul's issues with Stuart. Uh Um, Astrid actually talked about this. Like one of his frustrations is that Stuart didn't practice. And Uh I think that Paul probably felt like, look, I'm doing everything to ensure that we're the best. I'm skipping going out and drinking Mm because he's serious about this. Like Paul could have been the doctor, whatever, had a proper career. And instead he's channeling his talent where he wants it to be, which is music. But that's a decision. And I don't think that there was an option of failure for Paul.
1: Right. That's a really good point. I don't think he gives himself that option.
0: No, I really don't think there's, you know, the the discussing about like, well, maybe you would have been a teacher. Well, I read the Cleve interview in it. He's very clear. I didn't do that because I didn't want to be that. Like he didn't want to be a teacher. So he went all in on music. He had this partner that he trusted to help him get there. Uh But then this idea that he was always, here's the quote, actually. I was always coming across Paul backstage, practicing the guitar, singing snatches of songs I'd never heard before. He seemed to be grabbing every opportunity to improve his music. And I just loved that work ethic.
1: And that you, can, you can kind run. of picture him. You kind yeah. of picture him like kind of over in a corner and he's, I'm serious, we're doing this. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it, it speaks to a part of Paul, like an almost obsessive part. And actually, John did talk about an element of Paul being obsessive, right? He saw his dad kind of struggle. He made that point. I think recently about like, he saw how much it hurt families to have no money.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so he didn't want that to happen.
1: Mm, Like the
0: drive to make money, to be a success.
1: Yeah. This is kind of more like back to his mom's death, but I thought this was an interesting quote. He said, my mother's death broke my dad up. That was the worst thing for me hearing my dad cry. I'd never heard him cry before. It was a terrible blow to the family. You grow up real quick because you never expect to hear your parents crying. You expect to see women crying or kids in the playground or even yourself crying. And you can explain all that. But when it's your dad, then you know that something's really wrong and it shakes your faith in everything. I was determined not to let it affect me. I carried on. I learned to put a shell around me at that age. Right. I just think, I think his mother's death affects him in so many ways and it's right, just right right it just keeps him pushing along
0: <laughs> yeah it's much more profound to his psychology yes than than has ever been really taken into account we have so much more s- softness towards paul like some of his potentially annoying traits it's like some of john's kind of mean <laughs> traits can be softened a little bit When you know that it's probably coming from fear or or hurt, Mm -hmm. it's like some of Paul's controlling or obsessive traits can be better understood from this being a reaction from that.
1: For sure. I think the more that I've learned about Paul and the more I've learned about his early years, I just understand more of like where his decisions were coming from and where his things that before seemed like maybe kind of cold non-reactions, Yes, I learned that Maybe some of those cold non-reactions are coming from a 14-year-old kid being scared and afraid and not knowing what's going to happen next. I have a lot more understanding and patience and empathy. I have the same kind of patience and empathy for John because I have dug a bunch into his childhood. And I I just think the more you learn about them, the more you kind of are like, oh, that's why that happened. That's why that reaction caused that other reaction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Iris Caldwell in here says something about the fact that as much as everyone loves Jim, that Paul was really helping Jim, propping Jim up.
1: I remember that Paul was kind of holding things together for his dad,
0: for for his dad. Exactly. And that's why sometimes John can be really cool for being rebellious. Well, Paul's got a different situation. He's got a grieving dad that he's worried about, you know, when John's like, he didn't rebel against his dad. Well, he's got a much softer side towards his dad because he knows his dad's cried and was struggling and that frightened him, you know?
1: And I think probably even Mike factors into that too. I think when, when you've got a little brother that you're like, oh God, I've got to take care of him too. Yeah. And you know, John didn't have that experience. He wasn't, you know, he didn't really grow up with his sisters. Yeah, I think that Paul felt a lot of responsibility, just like constant responsibility. And sometimes I, I you know, I, I wish somebody could have just hugged him. Like I wish they could have hugged John. I wish they could have hugged Paul and just been like, let us help you.
0: Yeah, well- Linda did Linda did yeah (laughs) yeah at the right time (laughs) Linda did yeah Paul needed somebody to hug him and say it's okay to let down your shell and Linda did and John needed somebody to fight for him and Yoko did that so there we go yeah but but in some ways they probably both wanted the other to do that for each other right
1: I know well that's another universe Jane kind of factored into this book some sweet things about their relationship and how much they complimented each other.
0: Yep. Yeah, I like that too, actually. Like there was a really nice section on Jane and people really talked about their relationship and it brought it to life really well for me.
1: It did. And another thing that was eye-opening for me, the Paul McCartney that Salowitch describes as compared to the Paul from the last 20 years or so old man Paul, you would think all he did was just hang out with the Beatles all day. every day. That was all he cared about. He really had a lot of life and experiences outside of the band, which has been shocking to me. I think I really expected him to be like the Beatle that that was all he cared about. And I've really been surprised to learn that he had a lot of other friends and a lot of family and just how much he had a life outside of the band.
0: Yeah, that's the thing is like Paul does himself no favors these days. He so undermines what a rich and interesting life. Honestly, one of the most interesting stories is McCartney living with the Ashers, this crazy eccentric family in the middle of London that are into the arts, you know? And Paul just kind of dropped in and lived with them. It's so crazy. And that he was willing to be led in the art scene with her, and then he had his extended family, and he didn't live with the other three. It's such a big deal that McCartney is really big Beatles. Beatles. Yeah, is, is by far the most independent and self-sufficient.
1: Right. Uh, there was a quote from Tony Barrow, who said, and this was around like '65-ish, I think. Paul was leading an organized and scheduled life, more so than the others. Lots of dinners, art shows. Like you had to call Paul and make sure he was available on Sunday night. You yeah. know? Right, right. Just think that's so funny because, you know, I mean, the other Beatles, from what I can tell, were out in Weybridge having bonfires occasionally. Exactly. You know? Ringo would show up at John's house. You know, Paul, you had to check a week or two in advance and make sure he didn't have other plans that night. But I love to know that because, like I said, from the way he's talked the last 20 years, some of that information's been shocking because he just kind of makes it sound like the Beatles were all he had. And I don't think that was the case. Not in a bad way, but... No, I know, I know.
0: The movie of McCartney's life, if you were to actually build it on what happened would be so fascinating versus the movie story that he tells now is it's an it's it's unfortunate I wish I could be Paul McCartney's strategist yeah well can you call him (laughs) yeah Paul I got some stuff you need to listen to we complain constantly (laughs) but it's interesting because you basically are somebody who has always loved the Beatles and so it's interesting to hear how distorted your impression was mm-hmm. from just listening to Paul's current interviews.
1: Yes. So I was an anthology baby. I was probably 11 or 12 when the anthology came out and I got obsessed with them, like l- taped it on VHS tapes. <laughs> so my dad and I would just watch them over and over again. But I got to the point where I just I couldn't even watch the third one because that was the breakup and it was depressing. And so I have seen the first and second anthologies that go through like 67. I mean, I can quote them. And when something new would come on, you know, I would keep up with articles here and there. And I did see Paul McCartney when I was in high school, but I didn't get back into it until Get Back came out. And then I saw him again last year on his Get Back tour so I've always kept up with them, but yeah, his impression has very much been that the Beatles were what he had. That was, that was all he had. And so in the last year and a half, I've like dug into the story, needing to know everything. Everybody's impressively.
0: Ever like, yes. impressively.
1: <laughs> I need to know, I need to know why you did that and why you said you did that. Yep. And I'm kind of like, Paul, no, like you had a whole big life. What are you talking yeah, about?
0: And that's the thing is like one of his uh, bandmates talked about McCartney basically having this huge life right now, and he's like, we're just a part of it. But he also had this tremendous life with Linda. Yeah, they're such a fascinating couple too. I mean, that's for future discussion. But yeah, yeah, you know, I just feel like he's not conflicted about that. That that's his personal life, but. I don't know. Paul McCartney as artist. When you take all these things into account is so much more interesting.
1: Well, when you think about like, because I know you've talked about with Joe Hagan and he says that Paul is just very concerned right now about his legacy, like how certain topics are going to be remembered. And is that what he's going for? I
0: think so. I think he's stuck in a loop. I mean, I, sometimes I get angry with him and then to remember that for 20 years, He was blamed for the breakup and seen as the bad guy. And and as we discussed, there's still elements of mistrust and that he was manipulative. And like all of these really negative concepts are associated with McCartney being sneaky and underhanded.
1: Manipulative and... Yeah, that
0: that he uses his charm as a weapon and inauthentic. And I think that he's always reacting to this view of him being... It's it's like Yoko's issue with being the one like you you know she's always talking about the fact that she was blamed for the breakup, and Paul too who's also the other person that was blamed for the breakup, but neither of them was responsible for it, and I I just feel like that's all Paul cares about right now, mm-hmm. is not being blamed for the breakup, and it being clear that he loved John. I wish we could just talk to him and say,
1: mm-hmm.
0: oh nobody thinks. You didn't love the Beatles. Well, nobody I don't think
1: anybody thinks he didn't love John. Does
0: anybody think that anymore? No, nobody thinks that. He's fighting a phantom idea, but I, I do believe he's fighting these. And and I think that he tried to be like, when I read his interviews from the seventies, he's fairly nuanced. And I just think he learned through trial and error through the the years that the simpler he is, the more people love it. I mean, to this day, he's still telling that yesterday story. I mean, you know, like, who is no, that for? I, I, don't know. I don't know.
1: Yeah, just kind of robot type thing. Yeah. <laughs> he's his own AI. Have you been he seeing is. him going
0: around? He, he is. He, well, I mean, AI of McCartney stories would be really easy because there's only four of them. But um, yeah. yeah. But anyways, oh, you know what? I just saw this quote. I had this quote in about Jane, which I agree. There was some really nice stuff about, just it really brought them, to life, I think it's
1: here's important a, to know that she's important.
0: You know, she what I mean? is important, and you know, as I've said on my podcast, I've had conversations with Miles, and he talked about how really and truly c- close and loving Jane and Paul were. And here's a few quotes that I I highlighted from the book. Jane's beauty was composed of an innocence that flowed from within her, a quality that entranced Paul rather than from any sense of overt sexuality. She was so unlike those girls who would throw notes at him on stage. You know, it seems like there was something like a goodness about Jane. Mm -hmm. And then here is another quote from Ian Somerville. He said this about Paul and Jane. Ian felt Jane Asher to be an ideal partner for Paul McCartney. So different from the often gold digging groupies who flung themselves at him wherever he went. Jane was a very sweet, extroverted girl. She was bright, conversational and full of fun and was extremely fond of Paul, but didn't show off about him. He wasn't a status symbol. In fact, I felt she wanted to keep it all very quiet and very personal. She wasn't at stage doors at parties all the time. Their relationship was kept very quiet, simply because that's the way both of them liked it. They seemed to ideally complement each other. Both seemed fairly gentle and thoughtful and seemed to get on really well. I'd never detected any friction whatsoever. You know, there's always the famous Marianne faithful comments which paul used in in many years from now and i almost feel like he used her to undermine his point undermine, yes undermine their relationship to elevate yes uh, his relationship with linda and it's unfortunate because they can both be wonderful they were for different stages
1: yes i think jane was a big deal that was a, a big deal within his relationship with john and Maybe, I don't know, maybe the Beatles. I don't know. It just feels like with Jim. No, I think I you're right. With and, Jane, uh, he's with one crowd and yep. he's kind of behaving one way yep. and he's having a great time. And I yep. think it's that duality of his Gemini nature. When he's with the Beatles, he's a totally different guy. Who's also having a great time. I don't think there's anything fake about it. I mean, I don't think he's being phony when he goes off with Jane and her friends. And I don't think he's being phony when he's doing LSD with John. I think he enjoys both worlds.
0: Well, and that's an important point is that one gets the sense that he's not being genuine when he's doing one thing or the other. He's a complicated man and there are facets to his personality And so the way that he is with Jane, I think, speaks to one part of him, you know, that's curious about culture and the warmth of a really interesting family. And she's challenging to him. And I think that's very different than what the other Beals have. And Mm -hmm. she's on his toes. But Jane didn't write a book. And we don't know her perspective. Jane just isn't present enough in the story. But she's a really big deal in the story because she kind of gets in between Lennon and McCartney in the way that yoko and then linda does as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: jane refuses to take a back seat and so i think that's probably one of the issues they could never fully settle is that she wasn't willing to give in to being the second most important and john wasn't willing to give in and so they've got this tension and, you know, she also enables Paul to be fairly independent. I think so. This was in a, an article by Hunter Davies. He said that, I suppose I was amazed when it all came to pass that John and Cynthia had broken up, but then none of the Beatles is really married in the accepted sense of the word. With them, it's equality in originalness. In fact, the Beatles are closer to each other than to their wives. They can communicate with each other without needing to speak. Jane Asher didn't want to be the fifth Beatle. She wanted to be married to Paul not for blokes. Um, you know, that was always the tension between Paul and Jane. And ultimately, I believe John. John would have felt this too. It's the intensity of the Lennon McCartney relationship that was at the core of their issues with women.
1: I feel like she is a missing piece of the puzzle for me. Yeah. Just her story and her presence and you know, I know John says at some point in the seventies. Yeah, I expected Paul and Jane to get married. I expected him to marry her. That was uh, what he said in St. Regis. Is that, okay.
0: Yeah. And I I felt like that actually really registered to me was that he makes the point that he was surprised by Linda because he fully expected Paul and Jane to get married. So the fact that they broke up you know, Paul likes to talk about the fact that it was a long time coming, but we've got photos of them looking incredibly happy about two weeks before they break up.
1: And gorgeous. I mean, they yeah, looked they looked just lovely together. <laughs> yeah,
0: they did. They looked very affectionate and very happy. I mean, he was cheating on her the whole time. So there was
1: that. But that's that Gemini thing. It's like, a, I don't know. It's, it's wild with him.
0: Yeah, it was. Well, I almost think that the losing... Jane and then the loss of John is what enabled him to be fully loyal to Linda. Oh, it was God, kind of yeah. like he learned his lesson twice on top of each other. Yeah. I think it was so traumatic that he kind of made sure that didn't happen again. I you know?
1: know, I think you're right. And I think it's important that John sees Jane as someone that Paul is going to marry. That he, like he knows a, that's
0: whole, a full rival, a full yes. rival.
1: He knows that that's someone Paul will probably marry. He knows Paul wants a family. He knows that Paul loves her family. Like, I think he knows Paul's love for her mother, especially. I think John can sense that. And I feel like in 67, when he's in a good, calmer mood, trying to make things smooth out, you know, probably there's selfish intent there. He's like, well, how can I make this work for me and me and Paul? But you know, I think he's like, well, we could all live together in Greece, well, we can raise our kids there and we could all they to be
0: together. here part time. Yeah. yeah. And we'll have, a school. we'll have a school for all of our kids.
1: I think in his mind, he thinks he's trying to make this work.
0: Yeah, in the way that Paul tries to make it work with Yoko, they, they, yes. both men know these women are rivals and refuse to settle just rivals for each other's attention. And that's what Jane and her family were, I believe. And as mm-hmm. you're, we're discussing it for Paul and John, it's important that they remain number one to each other. And mm-hmm. I think that Paul has the status of being number one to John in the sixties in, in mid sixties, you know, whereas Paul still has Jane that's like uh, vying for that position. I think Jane is, as you said, she's a big deal. Her family's a big deal. They really matter to Paul and they wow. give the ability to be independent
1: yes and a, a group of friends and a group of people outside of yeah yes. And Jane was not just like a passing craze weren't they together about five years yeah yeah I mean, that's, it was a long relationship it is um, I wish we knew more about that and about her perspective because I think that's important
0: yeah I think so too I'll have to do an episode on the Ashers I did interview Peter Asher did you I did. I listened yeah.
1: to him on something recently about, about his new book.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Um, Peter Asher was such a pro that it was kind of impossible to get a question into him. Like it was just very pat answers, which, you know, for my, my podcast is not of interest to me. But you need he, to
1: get into your psyche. <laughs> Why yeah, exactly.
0: And that's the problem. Peter is compelling because he was around this central relationship that everyone's dying to know. Yeah nobody will talk about. But one thing that he did say in his conversation was that Paul was just crazy about his sister. And, and Selavich really liked Jane.
1: Yeah. And she seems likable. I can see why it was a challenge for John. I can see why John was a challenge for oh, Jane. Oh,
0: definitely. I mean, <laughs>
1: different personalities.
0: Yeah. Um, Barry Miles makes the point yeah. that John and Paul were both very bohemian in yeah. me. Like as driven as they are, I think that they're driven by art. You know, Salovich talks about McCartney being like Picasso. Mm -hmm. And does anybody criticize Picasso for being driven or hungry to create? Mm -hmm. That's how I see McCartney and, and Lennon. And so when we talk about them being driven to progress, that is just part of their artistic nature, I think, you know?
1: I think so. And I think they sensed that in each other from early on. Do you remember that article we looked at a few days ago? It was from 67 and it was talking about how Pepper had come out and how popular it was. And it had that great George quote. And George was saying, well, I think we're just getting started. And then it had some, some great information about John and Paul. And Paul had some great quotes about progress around that time. But the author ended it and he had this really good paragraph and he was saying, yeah, the Beatles are on this trip with their yellow submarine and it's for the Beatles and all their friends. And it's just a submarine trip of music and creativity and love and, you know, it is all hippie and peace. And I was thinking to myself, I mean, that is totally the Beatles. That's totally yellow submarine together now. I don't think Jane Asher really wants <laughs> to be on that submarine with them.
0: Definitely not. That's that's Jane's nightmare. I saw an interview from Jane from 1967, and, and it was when she was in the States. And she talks about how she likes to get up every morning and play classical music, and that she's not really into pop music. And of course, she doesn't do drugs, even though Paul tried to persuade her for as long as they were together to do LSD with him. So yeah, I mean, that's... That's a problem. That's That's a problem. When she's gone, he's deep in the submarine with the Beatles. What was interesting, too, is I loved Paul's comment in that. He said he wanted to jump into the chasm of, like, the space between where music is going and where it is right now. But he also said that what we're doing, this is where we're at. Yeah, it's like we are here now. And it was very, it was quite profound. I'd like to get that exact quote, but he talked about like, it was kind of the idea be here now. This is where we are. I can't say anything about where we're going or where we've been. This is where we're at. And you know,
1: I like that from Paul because he does think ahead so much. I like that. Yes. He's just able to live in the moment.
0: Yes. Yes, it was. It was quite different actually. Yeah. But it was Uh quite um, zen.
1: Yes. Well, that's the thing is that I know his statements about the LSD experiences in many years from now. And at that point he's telling us, you know, he was very hesitant and it was a long time coming with John. It's interesting his comments in the sixties though, because he's very like, seems like he loves LSD.
0: (laughs) I know. And you know what? I think we have no idea how many times McCartney's done it because I interviewed like a number of people and they're like, oh yeah. And then we did acid you know with paul at dinner and it was like how many people say this because you know like the people from the fool remember paul has an affair with a woman oh yeah and then her partner finds out and then they all do LSD together to try and get
1: over it don't they do like, it to like yeah to like make smooth things over yes
0: exactly to be cool together but it yeah. ends up being torture for the poor guy and Leslie Cavendish talks about how after dinners with at McCartney's he would pass around LSD and then we hear about Paul doing LSD with Robert Frazier and see God and I've started to realize that I think Paul did a lot more LSD. I think there was that? a lot
1: of LSD. And there was enough to for Jane to feel jealous of John and Paul's spiritual experiences. Well,
0: that's a good point that it probably wasn't once with John.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think they were kind of on the same wavelength there that year. So that's
0: right. And that that is confirmed by Miles, who said that he would often see Paul and John together in 67 when Jane was away. It was often he would go out for dinner with Paul and John. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. 67, some good stuff.
0: I don't know if you heard it, but he's like, John met Yoko, and I was sort of left out of the picture. And then I met Linda, and Paul always forgets the other part of the story that John felt locked out of the Jane Paul thing. Like Paul always leaves that part out. That's, that's where.
1: And I don't know if he just can't talk about it because he doesn't want to talk about Jane or I, that's what i don't understand is i i don't understand how he has had trouble seeing how so many of his actions and behaviors were hurting john
0: yeah but i i honestly do think he misses that he doesn't realize the fact that actually john was so extreme because he'd been hurt for a long time because paul had left india with jane and had his family and had her family around and to John, it seemed like he was never available. And, and I think, as we said, that maybe Paul got so used to being able to come out to John's anytime he wanted. Like, John was around for when Paul wanted him. Yeah, And all of a sudden, John meets Yoko, and that shocked Paul, because he didn't have immediate access to John in the way he did. So he tells the story right now, like, well, John was the one that, like, you know, left me on my own it's like Jesus Christ Paul John had been complaining about you for years you didn't move to Weybridge you didn't move there with the other
1: That's nice feel. and it's not that I'm mad at Paul for not moving to Weybridge but i am just sometimes I'm like can you acknowledge that yeah. some of this yeah. stuff was probably yeah. very very hurtful <laughs> <laughs> no and this is what
0: I mean about like When I'm saying we need to treat Paul differently and talk about him differently and more objectively, it's not necessarily that I want to give Paul credit for being like the good guy, the hurt guy. I don't. I want us to say that Paul, as the narrator, tells that story, but we have more information and we we can look at the fact that, you know, John tells Pete Schotten, you know, don't leave me, you're all I've got. He feels alone in 68. like. John in 71 says that Paul was the closest person to him, had always been, except for Yoko. And he doesn't think Paul is around at that point, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, my favorite thing that I took away from the book, which we kind of touched on at the beginning, was I just loved the way that Salvage portrayed John and Paul. I thought it was a lovely portrayal of their relationship and their interactions And I didn't think there was anybody trying, you know, he's the bad guy. He's the bad guy. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I I agree. I love that about Salovich, too, is that he really likes John, too. And I think he actually gets John quite well.
1: I think he does, too. I think he understands. He kind of refers to it as John being the softer, kind of the more feminine side in their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard to see that on the surface. Like, if you're just a surface-level Beatles fan and you just watch them on stage and you see John, like, grounded there with his guitar yes yes yes. in his
0: macho fronting pose yeah you know
1: he's got his legs spread apart and he can't see and he's he's
0: squinting he's kind of that that, that stance
1: he's like looking around is Paul there is George there (laughs) Yeah, and you know if you're just like a fan looking at that I can see how maybe you would think okay like the way John stands there maybe he's a tough guy who has his life together but
0: he's not um which he told us by the way in the 70s (laughs) He He was like, that was me. I had my, what did he call it? What were the two
1: sides? There was the velvet feminine side is Oscar Wilde. Was the other Marlon Brando?
0: Yes, the other was Marlon Brando. So we talked about McCartney having two sides. Well, those are John's two sides. And I think so often- People see the Marlon Brando side, but John is saying there's the soft feminine Oscar Wilde side.
1: He tells us that like a lot, you know, I
0: <laughs> tells us that a lot. I know, but I think that men don't like it or something. Or the 70s men didn't like it, Yeah, whatever, but he tells us that a lot. And that's something that Salovich picked up on was John's maternal, nurturing, feminine energy, which I loved because... Sure, John has a masculine energy, and we know about that. Mm -hmm. But he also has this side, and that's really important because as we talked about, Paul kind of needs that.
1: Right. And and I appreciated that Salovich talked about it. Like he's still a strong character. He just has a gentleness and a vulnerability to him that Paul is able to see and that. Paul admires, and that's part of their bond.
0: Right. I mean, I would argue that the stronger you are, the more gentle you can be, you know? So I don't ever see a nurturing, you know, gentleness as being a weakness, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to note that McCartney biographers in in general tend to really like and respect Mm Lennon. I can't think of any McCartney biography where they either write off John or are negative about John maybe there's one but I I can't think of any Mm -hmm. whereas there's a lot of Lennon biographies where they don't respect McCartney and they write off their relationship
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and I just there's something underneath that Mm -hmm. and it's a problem because both can't be true you know John and Paul can't just be close in Paul's world either they were close Mm -hmm. and that's the situation or they weren't, you know? And I I think it's, I don't know, maybe some of the authors that have written about John have been more attracted to the Marlon Brando side of John that didn't need anybody but Yoko. Maybe they just fell in love with that vision or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I see that more as a reaction to what was going on in his world at the time I think some of them yeah definitely
0: I don't think that was true oh
1: yeah I Uh, think it was that was a phase that he went through for a few years
0: it was an external phase
1: I think so and then he settled down and I mean I don't know I've told you so many times but I think when you look at pictures of John in uh, 64 and early 65 and even in 63 John's favorite place seems to be when he's right in the middle of the four Beatles with this smile on his face. (laughs) To me, that speaks to like how much of a family they were to him that he had never had. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm not sure, like maybe, maybe some authors don't look at pictures or videos. I don't know. I
0: I think that's a great point is that like really deeply examining the body language of photos and videos is actually part of the study. I mean, Hallie sends me pictures of John looking incredibly happy, being really close with the the Beatles.
1: He looks calm. And the more you dig, stories come out where I think it was 1965 and they had finished a tour. And John was like, I've got this new film projector and we can watch films all night. So he's (laughs) trying to get everybody back over. To move in
0: with him, basically. Yeah,
1: to move in after they just got home from tour. Like, I don't know how how their closeness gets lost when they tell you it's there and their stories that it's there but
0: well and that that's you know it's the predominance of Lenin remembers like honestly probably gave a thousand interviews in his life why does this one overshadow everything I know it was a deep long interview that was published into a book but the Saint Regis is just as compelling yeah. And it's there for us the the Playboy interviews, the Cleve, like there's so many interviews. Oh, I know.
1: He says very different. He gives good information in in, you know, in almost anything he does. But I think we would view Lynn and Remember so differently now in a world where we know more about emotional health and mental health and right. uh, watching right. patterns of behavior. I just think we would be able to analyze that better for what it was at that time
0: right right to contextualize it and say yeah. like, this is a guy who's just abandoned like very deep therapy he's on and off heroin at the point he's mm-hmm. he's in the throes of a very bad breakup
1: mm-hmm. we know he's had mood swings his entire life so we already yeah. know that that's there for that to have been taken for like the gospel truth is just so unfortunate
0: I know.
1: But that's what you're here for
0: That's what you're here
1: for too. Okay. I'm trying to find any of my good John and Paul quotes. There was some good ones from Sam Leach. Sam
0: Leach's were great. He was a great source.
1: Oh my goodness. They were really good. Okay. So this was one of them. There was something strong, resilient, and durable about Paul. He acted as an anchor for John's indiscipline and barnstorming impatience. And as an anecdote to his angry air of badly secreted pain. The Beatles were very democratic, said Sam Leach, but I used to deal with Paul most. John would put on this big Ted act, but he wasn't really a Ted at all. I knew he could be really sarcastic, but personally, I never had a single bad word out of him all the time I knew him. In fact, John was a bit shy. That's why women used to dominate him. Paul seemed far more confident, more certain of his abilities. He'd had a good education and he knew how to handle people, how to get by. He was always trying to get around you. Come on, give us a bit more money almost grabbing you, just having a bit of a laugh. Paradoxically, John's female side was more pronounced than Paul's. Behind the stance and pinched lips was a figure of infinite softness and fragility, capable of boundless love, not only for others, but also for himself. It was good stuff. And then there was one other one. Okay, so Sam Leach says the world never saw the Beatles as we saw them in liverpool he insists and it was the symbiosis between paul and john that was the core to their dynamism they were good mates they'd help each other and they never tried to upstage each other while one was at the front of the stage the other would do the backing and vice versa but whoever was doing the lead singing would put so much into it that it was as though the other was saying go on follow that that was (laughs) the rivalry that they created they pushed each other on but it was a healthy rivalry The funny thing is, you'd think somehow George would get left behind, but he didn't. He developed his own style. Paul was a bit bouncy and John a bit sneery, but George came across as a bit shy, and the girls liked that. But I think Paul definitely had an edge on the fans, no doubt about it. I'd say he probably had about 60% of them.
0: Right. Yeah. Sounds about right. Uh, Yeah, I I love that symbiosis, the idea of like that they were in this dance, as we discussed at the beginning, you know, and, and that it was fun for them. I think it was Pete Best who talked about that, how he would sit and watch. And that was his description, too, is that they were always there was a fun in it, like outdo that. And they kind of liked it when the the person managed to outdo them and because it would make them step up their game. But then his point was that it didn't end on the stage when they left in life. They continue this, which yes. was they're insane and for anyone else who was not them
1: i know and pete best said this and i think even Salwich, somebody in his book commented on this like how funny paul could be yeah like he was just as sarcastic and could have that cutting humor and that wit and you know he was just as quick and he and john would just give it back to each other all night after they left the stage i think people miss that they found each other funny
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know how they could also, you know, in Paul's role as, I don't think Paul's a true PR guy, but I think he was the one that was actually willing to communicate information to the press. Like he was kind of the mature one of the group that was like, okay, that was a lot of jokes. Now I'm going to tell you real information, but that kind of gave him a more serious air probably because in that mode, he knows his job is actually to communicate properly, you know? Right, yeah. I think he he probably felt too responsible to be just silly all the time.
1: Yeah, I know. I think that responsibility, that's like a big, that's a big part of him is like, okay, now we've had enough fun. We got to get serious for a few yeah, minutes. Yeah.
0: We were just talking about this before, but if you listen to like the chatter from Rubber Soul, you know, you can hear them. John and Paul, they think each other are hilarious they're so hyped up on each other.
1: They just impress each other so much. I don't think they're only, they're only playing for each other. I don't think they think anyone's as funny as them, as smart as them, as talented as them, as quick as them. They they don't. I mean, they were both
0: pretty incredible. So they weren't exactly wrong. I mean, George and Ringo are incredible too, but outside of that group. John and Paul are pretty extraordinary, you know?
1: I know, I know. And I've told you this before. I love that George and Ringo kind of gave them space to be. I do
0: too. I do too. Obviously it wouldn't have uh, worked if George would have had a problem with it from the start, but it's just like, you know, he had the ability to just do his own thing. Like the the, the infinite wisdom of George, just to step back and just be like, you guys do you, I'm going to do me
1: hmm yeah I think that's part of the magic is if it had been not Ringo or not George and you had had somebody kind of trying to weasel into that John Paul relationship it just I don't think it could have worked no but. it wouldn't
0: have worked but I, Paul and John would have pushed them out yeah. basically <laughs> you know basically that's what would have happened nobody exists between them and that's the problem with Jane and Yoko and, and Yoko
1: they, yeah I know
0: Yeah, there was a few. I'm looking through my notes. You've got me excited about quotes now. There was a few things that I actually like that I just want to build on. I flagged this in my discussion with Salovich, but he did talk about how funny Paul was. And that was like one of the defining characteristics. like He was always respected by the other boys. He was the person always ready with a witty comment. He would make all of his mates and peers collapse with laughter at this sort of voce remark rather than public one. Paul was eminently likable, charming, always armed with ready quips, but not impertinent. And Paul stood out as a bright lad, but a cheeky lad. It was much more than just the proverbial Liverpudlian wit. Intellectually, Paul was in a completely different world. He was a phenomenally bright lad and still is just so alert and sharp. And he's just still the same guy. Paul's bringing a lot of these same elements to the table as John. Right. He doesn't always get it. You know, that it's kind of like we want to pull John and Paul apart. So John gets to be the funny, smart witty one. Paul gets to be the nice sensible one, but that's not true. Like that's what I liked about this book was that he looks at Paul as an individual, not as, opposed to John. Mm -hmm. And in this situation, Paul just was gregarious, vivacious, Mm -hmm. funny, witty, cheeky in school.
1: Mm -hmm. Life of the party. Everybody, they said not withdrawn at all.
0: Here's another quote. He was a born leader. So gregarious, so popular. And leadership is something that came up a lot. This was something that somebody made a comment the other day in, uh, in, the one sweet dream Facebook group. And and they said, John was a leader. Paul wasn't. And it's like, that's not true. Uh You know, when you go into Paul's history, he was always seen as a leader, the head boy, you know, everybody saw him as a born leader. It's just that when he's matched with somebody like John who yells louder and is a year and a half older, Uh that all of a sudden Paul has to approach leadership in a different way And I think you almost needed somebody with the sophisticated interpersonal styles of McCartney to be able to hold his own with John while making John feel good. Mm -hmm. What a
1: gift that is, you know, like what a gift that is to be able to have confidence in yourself that, you know, that some of the things that you have in mind are the things that would be best for the band. And you kind of need to get your partner on board, but you know, they're very fragile and gentle. So you've kind of, you got to have this delicate balance to get things done. And I think that's such a gift because I don't know that anybody else could have had as much patience with John.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Paul has infinite patience as well as infinite cleverness when it comes to managing John.
1: Mm -hmm. He does. And I love that about him. I have seen Paul's SNL skit with Chris Farley mm-hmm. and then I saw another clip where he was uh, I think it was in the 90s he was doing an interview with Conan O'Brien and when Paul is just kind of in that deadpan like liverpudlian mood he's so funny it's like office awkwardly funny and I <laughs>
0: right 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 <laughs> also he's an incredible storyteller like I remember um there was an interview oh, yeah. that Paul did with Carly Rose in about 2000, uh-huh. and it was very funny, but he was different in terms of, George is very good with quips, like a quick quip. Uh-huh. John is funny and can be so silly. Uh-huh. Whereas McCartney is a very funny storyteller. Like it was really, he's a really incredible interview actually, but I remember just being thinking at that time, like that's his humor. He's a warm funny storyteller
1: yeah oh, and I think that's another thing that has gotten I think an, his humor's gotten lost especially maybe in like the last 20 years or so I don't know I think maybe as he's gotten older and he's kind of told the same stories people start to think he's kind of corny like his sense of yeah humor.
0: well he, he is.
1: is and I don't think he was dork
0: yeah 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 you're right pretty
1: suave and smooth with his words
0: oh absolutely that's how i imagine paul with women is like everyone comments how smooth paul was how smooth with women in a way that john wasn't right he was not
1: always grand
0: dude i like grand dude but in some ways it's sometimes i wish paul would step up into probably the more complex older person that he probably is. Yeah. yeah. But here's a quote. I'm just looking at my page right here. Paul is a very complex person. People feel that it was John who was the complex beetle. But in the first place, Paul had this extraordinary dualism. At any given moment, he could be so easygoing and so casual. Yet there was also this toughness. He would hold the class entranced. trance. He was a born leader, so gregarious, so popular. And he had this extraordinary faith in his own star, Yet at the same time, he had an ironic detachment from what was going on. He was able to view it all dispassionately. I think something that comes from his sheer intelligence for he was very bright. Irony is an elusive gift, quite rare, particularly when it is so self-deprecating. But he could be as sardonic as John Lennon. I remember this from when he was holding forth in class. He could deliver the sardonic, the devastating comment, even at that age. But because he was such a decent bloke, he wouldn't cultivate this. He wouldn't make a thing of it as John Lennon would. Lennon loved hurting people and stirring them up. Paul could do all that too. Everything that John said, he could have said, but he didn't. Um, this this line here, he could deliver the sardonic, the devastating comment, even at that age, but because he was such a decent bloke, he wouldn't cultivate this. I wanted to pick up on that idea because it is an important point to, to Paul. You know. Right now, Paul talks about John being soft. And a lot of people talk about that, that like, well, actually under his hard exterior, John was very soft and loving and had a heart of gold. And, you know, so it's sort of like, well, Paul was actually the asshole tough one and John was the soft, you know, sweet, loving one. But I think that a separate idea is Paul is a decent, kind person. He maybe wasn't as... Uh, openly vulnerable in the way that John is in the way that makes John very, very attractive. But I think Paul is a decent person. And that is what um, held him back from really being awful in the breakup. Like there's this sense, I've read many an article or book that says that, you know, Paul shouldn't have started a war with John because he couldn't equal John in terms of wit or toughness. And it's kind of like, No, it was that Paul wasn't willing to go for the jugular in the way that John is. And I believe John is because of all the hurt and woundedness from his childhood. Like, There's a reason John hurts people because he gets so hurt himself. himself, Whereas Paul is a bit more restrained because he does come from a nice, kind family. I think his basic nature, from what I can tell, is that way. I think Salovich assumes Paul is a decent person, like you kind of get that theme throughout the book, and it's important. No, I agree. I mean, it it may be like, duh, of course, you know, like Paul is nice. There's no big surprise there. But I think like the baseline assumption sometimes gets forgotten that Paul is probably fairly kind. Stella McCartney said, somebody said that she was nice and kind or something. And she was like, well, of course I would be. My parents are that way. And that's just one of the tenets of him, you know?
1: Well, I mean, I'm thinking. Just like in the 60s, just his goodness and kindness, like as the 60s went on to help other artists, like willingness. I mean, not just like write a song for them, but actually go in there and help them arrange it and produce it and, you know, get a hit with it. um, Yeah. Definitely something that was a strength of his. That's a very unselfish thing to do.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that in some ways, Paul was, they were all egomaniacs. But I think underneath that is a decent, kind human being. And sometimes when there's so much suspicion around Paul, I think that the fandom kind of forgets that at his core, he's probably a nice person. Doesn't mean he can't be out of control and kind of bitchy and demanding and all that kind of thing. But I still think at his core, there is a uh, decency. A good guy. And a good guy, yeah. 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 And, you know, like the point that he makes in um, when he's talking about John and the breakup and he said part of me wanted to strike back and then part of me is like, oh, that's John. That's my buddy. I didn't want to hurt him. I don't want to hurt Yoko now. And so I think if Paul was just more an out and out asshole, he could have defended himself better. And I think that sometimes some of our confusion about Paul is his internal struggle of being a decent person, but also wanting to defend himself.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a really good point.
0: But also specific to John, I think he really understands John's vulnerability. So I think he has a hard, like, you know, you look at the way Paul got mad at John in the early seventies. He's like, John's John. John's full of it. John's full of BS. It's like he was pissed off with John, but he wasn't mean about him. He wasn't cruel. He was never cruel about John. The too many people. Well, yeah, that's a little bit like, John, you're full of shit, but it's not cutting and hurtful and cruel in the way that how do you sleep is I believe. And, you know, and I don't think that means that John, didn't love I just think that reflects how hurt John was and how he plays
1: because that's his childhood you know right yeah I agree and I think it's also a reflection of who he was around at the time too and being influenced by I don't think that was you know I don't I don't think that was helpful either
0: (laughs) well right I mean he's got like Klein and Specter. As his barometers of what's okay. You know, when Ringo is leaving and going, that's not cool, John, like maybe trust Ringo.
1: Because right. we know Ringo's
0: yeah. decent. You know what I mean? Where Klein is like adding lines. That should have been the wake up
1: call for John to be like, there's a problem here. He thinks Klein loves him at that point. So he does. But yeah, he said, he's like, well, Yoko loves me. Klein loves me. Phil Spector, they love me, they understand me. And you know, we see pretty quickly that that wasn't the case for Klein and Spector. They had their own issues, so.
0: Yeah, and that maybe they did in some ways, but the problem is is they, they didn't know Paul and they didn't know John's relationship with Paul. And I think that's the problem with Yoko constantly advising John with Paul is I don't think she understood Paul and she was paranoid herself. And that's the problem is I'm not being mean about Yoko. I'm saying that in some ways, we can let her off the hook because she's reacting to a boogeyman that he really wasn't. Like, I don't know if she understands his basic decency.
1: Right. No, I think so too. I also think the Eastmans didn't understand John and his. That's true too. And so. And that's what's hard with John and Paul is that they seem to be the only two who really do understand each other in their relationship. And sometimes they don't understand it very well.
0: Yeah, hey, that's true. Um, well, and, and Paul has the added advantage of his wife is kind and she does to some extent understand John and she she's not afraid of him.
1: Right. And she tries. I think she tries with a you know, kind of open mind, but yeah, dealing with a lot of people who don't understand John and Paul. <laughs>
0: Well, that's the problem. It's like, and John and Paul's relationship, I mean, a lot of it happened behind closed doors. I mean, how many people are privy to what happened? So nobody really knows except for them and the closest people to them, you know, and even Linda, like 10 years after knowing Paul was like, I understand things much better now than I did then. Right. Know?
1: Yeah. I always enjoy some of George Martin's observations. Cause I think, you know, I think he was able to kind of get a good read on things.
0: Oh, he Sometimes. did. And I mean, and, and that's what Erin Weber, the historian who I had on my podcast, said she finds very frustrating. Like, we have somebody who witnessed them, who loved both of them, who saw their creative interactions for like eight years together. And he was very consistent in his point of view. They were both incredible. They elevated each other and they really loved each other. And they had a competition, but it was a productive rivalry based on impressing each other like that's what george martin says that and that it was deeper than any of us know so like there we go that's like a a
1: a, a tier one yeah competition you know it's like they just see competition and they don't see that that was fun. That turned each other on. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like part of them writing, I'd love to turn you on, I swear to God, is them to each other creatively, you know, like they're having fun saying it to the world, but also to each other. And it, it was exciting.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I love to, I love George Martin's books and comments and interviews because I think he gets a good read on both of them. And I think he just had had time he just had time to sit and watch them for hours and kind of see their reactions and how they talked to each other and how they treated each other and
0: yeah the interesting thing about George Martin is that he really loves like he seems to have been closer with Paul in the long run because Paul worked with him repeatedly but I think he really loves and admires John too I never got the sense that he loved John or admired John any less
1: Oh, I, I think he thinks John is brilliant. I mean, I think he's incredibly like, amazed and impressed by him. And one thing, one thing I think is interesting with George Martin is I think he's another like key person who has every right to kind of not have anything to do with John ever again. Cause John said yeah, yeah, things exactly. and was really unkind mm-hmm. when he was going through his angry phase. Um, but I feel like George Martin was open for, you know, reconnection even before John passed. Like, I think that they had communicated. So, you know, this is, I think there's this small group of people like Paul and Sin and George Martin and maybe even May, but they kind of know the real guy. And, yeah. you know, it just gives me, that just makes me believe in his goodness. I think that these core people absolutely never give up on him. <laughs>
0: Well, and also George Martin, like, got angry at him and and called him out on his bullshit. And Lennon remembers, remember George, remember George Martin. What does he say that he's like schizophrenic or something like
1: that? He's oh schizophrenic because that's not what he wrote in the postcard he sent me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, is that George Martin is saying that's so out of character? He's saying like that sounds crazy to me because that's so unaligned with anything that I ever experienced with John. And I agree, I think he adores John. And in some ways he did his best work on John's songs. Like I think I Am the Walrus, which is one of my favorites, is half George Martin. And Strawberry Fields Forever is like, you know, George Martin deserves a lot of credit on those songs. Right, yeah, for sure. I don't mean to be diminishing John's contribution. I mean to be elevating their partnership in saying that. And also the additional point, which is, and this idea that he was just nice, he was very complex. So yes, he could be nice, but he could also be the most astute of them, the toughest and the shrewdest, right from the start. There is this absurd oversimplification that it was John, the creative, complicated bloke, and Paul, the easygoing extrovert. No such thing. Paul is both. And a clever man to be able to wear two hats. And so that's kind of everything we were talking about. Now, this is a guy who sees all this in Paul. We could say the same for John. I don't want to undermine John's complexity, but I like hearing somebody advocating for Paul's as well.
1: Right, yeah, for sure. And I think that that's kind of the takeaway from Paul a lot of the times is that he's nice and he's sweet, but a nice, happy person, that's great. But like, he also wrote some devastatingly like, heartbreaking and beautiful songs so you know there's pain in there behind so much of what he does you know just a melancholy nostalgia and I think that's his mom I think in large part it's kind of his mom and kind of losing that childlike innocence at such a young age and not understanding why and I think that kind of followed him into life yeah
0: um But there was something I wanted to highlight, a really beautiful comment from Salovich about the connection with John about their mothers. In Paul, he's talking about John. In Paul, he immediately detected somebody who understood. Though the quarrymen, particularly Pete Chauten, were close friends, rock and roll did not affect their lives with the same all-consuming passion that it did John's. John even thought that Paul looked a bit like Elvis. The death of Julia brought the pair each privy to a secret shared by a few of their contemporaries even closer. Inexplicably, the women they each loved had been taken away from them, but oddly, this helped their music. From now on, an intriguing, mysterious melancholia lay at the back of everything they wrote and played, no matter how lively and up-tempo. And Paul knew that someone finally understood his own suffering and loneliness. And you know, that's really beautiful. That's something that Michael Penn and I discussed, is that especially with Paul, there's always this mm-hmm. sense of melancholy. It's funny, it? they're they're known as this joyful, funny group. And yet it's what makes them so enduring is that they have all of this range of emotion.
1: I know. In your episode with Joshua Wolfshank, where you talked about when two creative people kind of have this meeting and they sense something in each other. And of course, like, I'm sure they sense their love of music and John sees how amazing a musician Paul is and Paul sees that John is kind of off the cuff and just makes up words and is, you know, kind of spontaneous, but, you know, I wonder if pretty early on, they both kind of just sensed that, like kind of feeling of we're both sad and w- we see that, but we can help yes. each other.
0: Yes. I get you.
1: Mm -hmm. They each
0: had different sadnesses at that time when they met, you know, John's was being separated from his mother
1: Uh versus, you know,
0: Paul's. Right. How much that would have bonded him to John in ways that I've never thought before, just from Paul's own neediness, you know, of I have to be around this person because they get me, you know?
1: Yeah. I was thinking the other day, both of their firstborn children were named after their mothers, you know, isn't that interesting, And Mary. Yeah.
0: And you know, there was an interview that he talked about, I don't know, it was in the 70s or something, about how he told the group that they were going to call his daughter Mary. And they were like, Mary, that's boring, you know? And it was like, guys, have some sympathy. This is the name of his mother that he lost, you know?
1: Yeah, I know. I remember reading that. I was surprised. I was kind of like, what? And just reading in this book about the behavior changes. In Paul, after he lost his mom, yeah, I think it would have felt good to, to find somebody who who understood that same thing you were going through.
0: Yeah, yeah, and of course he apparently had infinite patience for John, and you know I think that infinite patience for John was not just about his love for John, I and mean, partly it was, but partly I think it reflected the fact that he understood that as much as he didn't show that outwardly, that is what he was feeling inwardly. You know. Right. And you know, that insight from Shank, that really famous pairs that do great things in the world tend to have this unique situation where they're extremely similar. It's like seeing your twin. And then they also have a side that's extremely different from each other, which probably is what creates the chemistry. It It makes
1: you so interesting to the other person.
0: Yes. Endlessly probably annoying but also interesting
1: yeah well and you've said it before like they just can't pin each other down ever No, yes. so they're always chasing they can't pin each other down
0: and I think that's a really important idea and that's why all these things that we're talking about Paul is important because when you underestimate McCartney the Lennon mccartney partnership doesn't really make sense
1: right Right. It takes people like you who decide, okay, well, I'm not just going to read this sad story about a breakup. Like I'm going to figure out what's going on.
0: Right. Right. Cause no. this doesn't make sense. No, yes. because it
1: doesn't make sense. Like I remember as a child watching anthology and it's like the second episode ends with, I think I am the walrus. And so you've gone through all you need is love. And it ends with, I am the walrus. And then when it picks up in the third episode, it goes through India for like 10 minutes. And it's just like darkness. It's just like darkness and sadness and grainy, let it be arguing. And you just know that it, that's not right. Right. People don't just wake up one day and be like, I hate my friends.
0: Exactly. I'm going to blow up everything in my life because, and there's no because.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And And the thing is, I just like accepted that, oh, I guess that's what happened. Like, it looks like everybody was really happy, but I guess one day they just weren't. Right. That's why the
0: story needed a Yoko because like, what happened to John Lennon? You know, yes. instead of thinking that maybe there's some stuff under the surface. And and even the Paul is dead issue, I think has to do with our intuitive understanding that something happened. Paul's not acting normally. John's not acting normally. Yes. Maybe Paul died and John is being controlled by a woman. Instead of understanding that something's going on between these two men that we can't yes. see. I
1: know. It's so weird that like all of a sudden they're not at each other's weddings. and
0: I know. You would think, actually, we can go to a quote from Salovich, but you would think that people would take a step back and just say, something does not add up here.
1: Yeah, so many of us kind of know that, but it's like, I don't know. It takes people saying, okay, this, this is all bullshit. We're starting over. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome. Okay. But, but also it's like, we
0: just built a whole story on the axis of this band being created around these dynamos and then at some point it's kind of like and then one of them just blew it up it's kind of like wait that's not a story I know like the stories you understand
1: what happens I think people have also it's been missed like how impressed John was with Paul I've listened to Julia Baird recently and she said Very emphatically, she was like, I believe that Paul and John were the essence of the Beatles. She was like, it was always the two of them. They were the dream team. And maybe it might've been a quote from Mike McCartney, but that John would act very serious around Paul when he would come over. Like, you know, he was cutting up all the time everywhere else and wreaking havoc all over town. But when John got with Paul, he like had his little glasses on and he would be serious and he wanted to learn the chords the right way. It's important to notice that John's behavior changed when he was with Paul because he cared about what Paul thought of him. Right. Well, here's a
0: quote that quickly Lenin tried to emulate the same obsessive attitude with which Paul applied himself to music. Um, this co opting of the younger boy's attitude, which fitted more awkwardly on the less orderly Lenin, had its inspiration in an extremely basic instinct survival. At the last moment, fate had thrown him a lifeline, Paul McCartney. Mm. But this idea of that, yes, he started to emulate that. And, you know, there's all the accounts of the quarrymen about how John would dress up when he knew Paul was going to be around. And, you know, there's so many cute accounts of how changed John was by the meaning. I think we understand that Paul was too, but the quarry men have all told their story. And you just get these wonderful, beautiful stories about how meaningful Paul was to John right from the start as well on both sides, you know?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I feel like I'm always, I'm always buoying the, the image of Paul and always talking about how much John loved Paul, but that's only because... Paul has been so misrepresented, misunderstood, and people just bought into the bullshit of Lennon remembers and, you know, as John's actual attitude towards Paul versus John spouting off when he was hurt, you know?
1: Right. Yes. I remember sending you some paragraphs from another book that I had read recently. And it was like at this 800 page book, And within page like 82, in two paragraphs, he had like killed the Beatles story. It was just like, John was depressed. John hated everything. He was with this band for 10 years and it was awful. You know, that was like the attitude was miserable. John was miserable. John was miserable, had no attachments. Yeah. Hey, well, he wrote a lot of songs about all you need is love with a little help from my friends with all his buddies. It's like they miss the feeling of community in the group. And I mean, yes, there was competition, but it was like competition to be collaborative. And and I always talk
0: about this, but I know you believe in it too, is it's more to impress. Like that's the game, is to keep each other engaged and impressed. Right. There's no other audience that they care about. I know. Heavily women, probably, impressing women to some extent, and Jane and Cynthia, but but mostly they're just each other's audience. <laughs> and know. some
1: of these women are like, you two are weird. <laughs> <know how> <laughs> what are you guys doing?
0: <laughs> exactly. Really you forgot we're here.
1: With yeah. Hi.
0: there's two main messages that Salavich promotes in my conversation and in, in the book and that is that Paul is pure artist mm-hmm. and he compares him to Picasso. And and I really do think like uh, in 1980, John compares himself and Paul to two great artists too, like Magritte and uh, Matisse or something like that. And that's how we should think of them. They're both genius musicians. They're just different. Mm-hmm. And so Salavitch's one point is that they're both artists and Paul, this is a portrait of an artist that he paints. Mm-hmm. And the other bit is that they were co-leaders. You know, uh, Selovich is very, very definite that Paul is the engine. He's he's what drives them. And when I interviewed Paul Thompson and and Philip McIntyre, they also had that perspective after really diving in that
1: it, it was a co-leadership. I agree, and I I just don't think I don't think you have the magic unless you have the two of them pushing each other. And I think in any creative relationship or marriage or committed relationship. I mean, you have a dance like that where yes. Yes. one person is doing this and then the other person is doing that. And someday somebody has a bad day. And so yes. other, you've got to pick up slack over here and then you change it. I mean, that's, that's just how relationships work.
0: And that's, you know, they call themselves a marriage. Obviously they were not actually married, but that was the best metaphor that they could come up with. And that's the thing is there's no CEO of no. a minute, and th- the band is a family. And yes, McCartney and Lennon might have been the driving force of it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but that doesn't mean that that Harrison or Starr didn't have enough power to do that. You know,
1: and they all bought mean- into the dream. You couldn't have done that if you had three people who said, "Yeah, let's do the dream," and one person's like, "No, thanks."
0: Right. Exactly. And because when Paul decides, "I'm not into this dream with Klein anymore," it ends. It's over. It's over, you know? And so understanding this, uh, co-leadership isn't the right word because I've just, as I've just said, it's not really, if it's a marriage, it's not about leadership. It's about participation, commitment, you know? Right. It's a a fluid dance. Yeah. I mean, you know, Paul talked about, here's a quote from him from uh, when he was talking about the lyrics in 2021. He said, We grew up, and he's talking about John. uh, We grew up together. It's like walking up a staircase, and we've always been side by side on the staircase. I'm like a fan. I just remember how great it was to work with him and how great he was. And, you know, I think he never feels completely comfortable just putting it out there. He always flips because I think he knows it works better when he says, I'm a fan, you know, but his main point is here. It's like walking up a staircase and we've always been side by side on that staircase. He's making the point that they were equal. They were there together. They were going up together. And uh, I'm a fan is just a throwaway.
1: Yeah, yeah. Not the important part of the statement. Unfortunately,
0: that's the kind of thing people pay attention to. But I believe that Paul says things like that because he thinks it endears him to fans. Now, I also think he is legitimately you know, he appreciates and and adores John and is a fan of John in the way that John was a fan of Paul. But the way it's used right now, it makes it seem like it's an unequal relationship, but he's actually saying that they were equal, you know?
1: Yes. It's
0: like when Paul says he doesn't want to fight against the Cult of Lenin anymore, you know, he doesn't want to be at war with them, he wants to be a fan. It's like he's just decided that it's easier to give in and position himself as a, a fan than be pitted in this zero-sum game with John. And again, I believe that he is a fan of John in the way that a husband and wife are fans of each other. But it just sounds it sounds awkward, and I don't think that's the point he's making.
1: He's a fan in the way that. John calls Paul extraordinary. You know, they yeah. both view themselves that way. You know, obviously I, I
0: I think their partnership and their relationship is legendary. I have a whole podcast about it. But I don't take that kind of stuff seriously.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, he has lots of little bits like that. I'm a fan.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's almost a lack of confidence. Yeah. You know, he can't just say, "Look, we were equal." It was like we were on, you know, an equal staircase, and we were going up it together. That's his point, and it's like a little bit of insecurity saying, "I'm a fan." Yeah,
1: but, yeah you, know, you know, it is kind of the way the way he says it. It's like he starts off strong, and then you're right; it's like a little bit of insecurity creeps in, and so he adds a qualifier on there.
0: Yeah, well, he sounds self-con, like he gets self-conscious, and. You can hear in this interview when he's talking to Salovich, like he's very aware of being attacked. And that's why when I get so annoyed with Paul about the way he speaks, I also have to remember that he's been attacked. Like there's a reason why he went to Winter and was like, I don't want to be at war anymore with the cult of Lenin because he's been attacked for 50 years and, and diminished because of that, you know? But I wish at this point he was just like, fuck it sometimes he is. He's like, you don't know John. I know John, but most of the time. I,
1: know, I love it when he's like that. I love it mm-hmm. when, he, when he gets assertive.
0: <laughs> me too. Me too. But you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is that like, so Paul talks about the fact that they were equal and um, John was consistent with this in the 60s as well. Um, and in the 70s. And so if Paul and John are, uh, they're in a marriage type partnership, And they are equal, as they have both said, and they are the axis of the Beatles, then they must have been co-leaders.
1: Oh, I agree 100%.
0: You know, at least as a team and a partnership that's driving the Beatles. And I do think there are times when George takes the lead. I don't think that Ringo ever drives the Beatles, but I do think, you know, with India, with George brought his own flavor. And I don't know if he necessarily led the Beatles, but he brought something unique. But at that core, you know, as I believe, and I I think as you believe, the the axis of the Beatles revolves around Lennon and McCartney. And if Lennon and McCartney are equal, then just all of this talk about John was the leader is kind of bullshit, you know? And and that was the point that Salovich was making really definitively that, yeah, in some ways John was, but in some ways Paul was too. And that's my conclusion.
1: I agree. Um, When I read the 1963 book that came out last year. It was full of anecdotes from oh just people who had been around like people who had been waitresses or hotel workers, people who helped uh, carry stage equipment, all that kind of stuff. And so it was just their observations and eyewitness accounts and their yeah, you know yeah. memories, their short time with the band. And sometimes you would run across somebody who would say, oh yes, I for sure felt like John was in charge. And then the next page, somebody would say, Paul was the leader. He was leading the group. He had command of the musical direction. And I just felt like when you see that like 50-50 split on sometimes half the people think John's leading and half the people think Paul's leading, they must be leading together. (laughs) They must both be the leaders.
0: Exactly. No, I agree. And, you know, like this is kind of a, I don't know, a macho topic that... I don't think I would think that much about who was leading because obviously they were co-creating as Lennon and McCartney and obviously they both had a big say. Like that is enough for me. It's just, I find all of this, maybe it was because John really took leadership of the band in 1970, you know, in terms of saying it was my band. And I, I don't know where this idea of it being so much John's band came from. It, I just think it's a misrepresentation because as far as I can see, John and Paul started writing together when as soon as they met and they created a band around their vision for the band. And, and I just think it is a disservice to McCartney to position John as the leader. And it is a disservice to Lennon's commitment to McCartney and his ability to work as a collaborator,
1: you know, to suggest that he was just like this lone guy. He wasn't. It's not true. I think so too. And and I agree with you. I think it undermines John's lovely personality traits to it think. Does. That, it does. That
0: that he could, could be generous. He could share. It sort of undermines his admiration for McCartney too. The the fact that he was willing to be led by McCartney sometimes and he was willing to lead sometimes. And you can see this in get back. Like they're just always locked in, looking at each other, gauging. And you know, that's their story. None of this leadership bullshit,
1: you know? Sure. I think it undermines his admiration of McCartney, but I just think it's so important that John could trust McCartney. John wasn't someone who was very trusting of others. I think that's where that defensiveness you know, comes in. I think that he keeps people away. He doesn't let people in. And so he does his tough guy act to kind of keep people at bay. And he didn't do that with McCartney. I mean, I think from pretty early on, he could see that there was some kind of common bond there. And he was able to see pretty quickly that McCartney was someone he could trust
0: Yeah, that's interesting because um, when I had this exchange with Barry Miles, he talked about the fact that John was very, very defensive. Like he said, he found John very hard to deal with and very prickly, even though, you know, he talks about going to dinner with Lennon and McCartney and he knew them for a long time. He said he always struggled because John was so worried about being rejected that he rejected first. And it just occurred to me that he must have felt Paul's inherent kindness and strength to like, he was always trying to dominate people. Like he must've just felt Paul's energy that there was like a goodness there and a strength there not to have a tried to dominate him and B to have let him in, you know?
1: Yeah. I, there's so many like early days anecdotes, but I remember one of them, Paul's just kind of recently started playing with the quarrymen. men and he's come in with some ideas about some jackets they're going to get. And John's kind of hesitant about it at first, And he kind of grumbles and he's like, well, okay, if you think this is what we need to do? I just think it's sweet. John's able to kind of let his guard down and put his trust that somebody has his best interest. In.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, is John could be a great creative partner. Like that's the thing is that it wasn't a one-way street. It was a two-way street between them. Paul loved working with John because I think John was generous in this working relationship as well. Like they both were helping each other, and kind of this whole positioning John as like, you know, big swinging dick leader of the Beatles kind of you know thing, is, I don't know.
1: Well, and it's a- very interesting because it doesn't. That's not how I have heard. Paul, George, or Ringo describe John. I don't think John treats them in that manner. No. Maybe he had a few early days where, you know, they say he was crow the loudest about being the leader. But I remember in Hunter Davies' book, John makes a comment and he was like, yeah, Paul was reminding me that like, we used to have big fights about who was the leader and I can't even remember him anymore. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's true. But that's
0: interesting to me is that he was talking about, I think, in Hamburg, wasn't he? Yeah, he was referencing Hamburg. But the interesting thing about that is Paul's reminding him, "Do, do you remember in the good old days when we used to fight about leadership? Again, that's just that it wasn't John's band. Paul was fighting for leadership. John was fighting for leadership. So, you know, the way the Beatles are talked about, it just confuses me, like, where these ideas took hold. And some of them really need to be interrogated, like, truly. I'm not trying to knock down John as leader because I think he was one of the leaders. I just don't think he was the core leader, you know, right. it's, not the story. it's not the story of the Beatles.
1: No, I agree. And another thing that your podcast led me to was I read uh, <laughs> um, Paul Thompson's book where he has the lengthy chapter on strawberry fields forever. Yep and kind of how John went through that process with the of songwriting with that song. But when I read that, I just really thought to myself, I wish this was the kind of thing we celebrated about John instead of, you know, he was angry and he was tough and put them in their place. And what he said goes, which doesn't make sense with anything anybody around says who actually experienced him. But Paul Thompson's book, he really celebrated... John as a collaborator, as someone who was very open to letting people into his work and letting people critique his work and shape his work and I was like, I mean that's part of the beauty of him. You know, well, that's, that's part of what I love like, about him. <laughs> yeah, and
0: that's why he was great to work with. That's why George mm-hmm. liked working with him is that John didn't have to do everything. He stepped up and provided leadership in some ways and was able to take a back seat in other ways. So Anyways, like really and truly, if I wasn't just reacting to other stuff that was out there, I probably would never mention leadership because it's just not of concern to me.
1: I don't look at pictures of the two of them. And we've talked about how there's just so many beautiful photos and videos of the whole band, but especially of Lennon and McCartney. And I don't get the impression that they're like looking at each other and laughing all the time and saying, oh, I'm the leader, I'm the leader. They don't look at each other like they're fighting over who's the boss. Right. Right. Like
0: how many people out there look at their marriage and think I'm the leader? I mean, it's just a silly construct. It is. Have you you ever looked at your best friend and thought, I'm definitely the leader of this this friendship? I mean, it's bullshit and it's ridiculous.
1: (sighs) It's stupid. But, you know, in 1967, when Paul is supposedly usurping John's leadership role or whatever. I mean, have you ever seen someone like look as sweetly at each other as both of those men look at each other? (laughs) I mean, it's,
0: that's where more work needs to be done to pull apart what actually happened versus the framing of it later when they were in the throes of a divorce, you know? Right. Yes. Don't don't just giving bullshit excuses for the fact that Paul was doing a lot of stuff like, you know, Salovich's point is they were both leaders in different ways in terms of driving the band. And he thinks Paul is a big engine of driving the band as Paul Thompson said that as well, you know, and that's just in terms of ambition and activity. You know, um, Salovich talked about masculine and feminine energy and the masculine energy is really the forward momentum, pushing forward drive. Whereas the feminine energy is more creative and nurturing. And I think they both have that. But his point was that Paul was more the masculine energy. John was more the feminine. And I, I probably would agree with that. I mean, they can switch roles. I think they did switch roles. Oh, wow. But I think traditionally, their images would suggest the opposite, you know?
1: Right, yes, for sure. Yeah, I always feel like there's two of the forces at play in the Beatles that keep them moving is like Paul's need for progress. And at the same time, John's always keeping them together as a family. And that's kind of what just keeps them close and at the top.
0: Yeah, like Paul's pushing them onwards. And then sometimes John takes leaps into really unusual places. Like, you know, uh, tomorrow never knows. You know, John had this kind of unusual move of just reading the lyrics from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and creating this really droney song that was maybe inspired by Indian music that they were listening to, you know, but he brought something out of left field. And then, you know, Paul and George and Ringo were able to help him knock it out of the park. So they, they complimented each other in that way. I think John liked to do unconventional, while Paul was always pushing them onwards. But then again, you know what? Even though Paul claims to be the more conventional one, when it comes to his music, he could be every bit as freaky, crazy, experimental as John and sometimes more so. That's the thing about two such tremendous artists is you just can't pin them down and you know trying to give them these labels is pretty well useless because they're both just magic This is the first part of my conversation with Hallie. The next part will dive more into the 1986 interview with McCartney, more into what McCartney actually says. So please stay tuned for that. That'll be out next week. And um, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating or review, or consider joining the Patreon group, which is patreon.com forward slash one sweet dream. I'd love to have you as part of the community. And uh, I really appreciate any and all support for the podcast. So thank you. We'll be back soon with part two. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye everyone.